Guns up, giddy up. It's True Crime Tuesday. This is the podcast where we give you all the murder, mystery, and mayhem on Tuesday night. We're also the podcast that is angry at all other true crime podcasts and wants to destroy them. That's right. Here we're going to offer you the other side of the story, the police perspective, on the disappearance of Brandon Swanson. All that and some other stuff tonight on True Crime Tuesday. The growing calls across the nation to defund the police. To end policing as we know it. Off the charts violence in New York City. 11 people shot in just eight hours on this is Sunday. About the police officers, officers who every single day put on that uniform and they run towards danger when we run away from it. Oh, guns up, giddy up. It's John. I'm an active 911 dispatcher in the field. I'm joined tonight by Kendra Drama, former police officer out there on patrol somewhere in Southern California. I'm way up north, somewhere near, suspiciously near where our case for the night takes place or took place in 2008. This is also the America's only podcast that is court ordered. That is right. I have to be here against <laughs> my will. If I do not show up every single Tuesday night and do this podcast with my ex-wife, Kendra, Judge Henshaw will uh, void our divorce and we will be remarried. And um, that means the <laughs> alimony check stop and I will be destitute. So the only way that I, I can remain financially viable is by remaining <laughs> divorced, Kendra, and maintaining this podcast. Uh, speaking of uh, uh, never-ending nightmares, Kendra, how are you? How have you been? Oh, I've been terrible, John. Thanks for asking. How was your Halloween? We did a show on Halloween and then we went our separate ways, obviously. Did you have a good one? Yeah, I had a pretty low-key Halloween, which is unusual for me. I'm normally going all out. But... You went as the brother of Thor? Haha. <laughs> 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 Hilarious. That was terrible. That's why she um, left me, people. So... <laughs> I got tired of fake laughing. Um, <laughs> was it the only thing you faked? But what else? Did I was going to say that. <laughs> I was going to say that, but I was trying to keep it. So you know, normally we're classier than that. That out of the way. Can we please fucking talk about how you spent your classy Halloween? I uh, watched a movie. What movie did you watch? And I <clears throat> Return of the Living Dead. Cool. Your favorite. It's my favorite. Yeah. That you haven't watched yet, I'm sure. No. It's fine. Uh, you didn't ask Whatever. me about me, which is typical of you. Uh, <laughs> my Halloween was fine. You know, I live in this little town, and uh, we had uh, little little groups of uh, trick-or-treaters. And what's interesting to me is this is my first trick-or-treat, first Halloween in a very, very, very small town. And the first group of kids comes up. And uh, they said, uh, you know, for the first this little girl looks up and she goes, who are you? Because it's like I'm clearly a new person <laughs> in town. She could tell that like I'm someone that just got here and I explained who I am. And I said, who are you? You know, kind of politely. And she goes, I'm a child. <laughs> just like, how dare, how dare I ask? Like, don't, don't ask a child for their papers. Like, I'm just trying to be friendly. And then uh, also in this group of kids, at one point, one of these kids is like, uh, can I come inside your house? And I'm just like, there's nothing in there for you. Like, do you want to get yourself true crime? Do you know, like, I'm not, not threatening, <laughs> but you have little kids that just want to go inside the house. And it's just, 
I don't know why that's a normal thing. I don't know. I mean, I was, you know, I was kind of hosting a Halloween party and the door was open and I have a dog inside. So maybe they just wanted to pet my dog or whatever. So, but, but, but that was, that, that makes was, sense. That was unusual. Also uh, adding to the spookiness, I have an uneven sidewalk so that when the kids led, left, I had to constantly warn them not to twist their ankles as they left. We had at least <laughs> one child fall in the cold. So it was uh, fun to see. So after that, I had a, a, I was, like I said, I was hosting a small gathering of friends and i had uh, a nice uh lasagna dinner which is like the least halloween thing you could ever possibly eat and um and then i i watched the movie as well i watched the original john carpenter halloween and i actually really liked it which yes. is surprising because i don't i don't normally go in for movies like that and i i didn't think it was too scary i didn't think it was trying too hard it was so much more about mood and just the presence of danger and it sort of yes. escalated. But one thing that was interesting is that there's a cop in that movie, which, you know, is nice of them to include, which uh, at one point I get mad at my buddy because I'm like, uh, you know, there's this sheriff who's looking for Michael Myers or whatever. I'm like, do you think he could ever tell dispatch he's on scene? You know, and Cujo, that's how the <laughs> sheriff died. He went out to this farmhouse where this rabid dog was. It didn't tell a dispatcher he was anywhere. And he died because, you know, if he wasn't answering his status checks, they would have sent another unit or possibly an ambulance out to go check on good old Sheriff Barrowman. So... That and the only thing that made me mad about that movie, too, is that the sheriff's daughter was one of the first victims after Michael Myers escaped. And it's like we never mm -hmm. we never check back in with the sheriff when he finds out that his daughter has been murdered and um, has Michael Myers' sister's tombstone in the bed. Which, <laughs> first of all, I'm like, man, that thing's 500 pounds. How the fuck did he <laughs> to quietly take the uh – Can you just imagine the deleted scene where he's like, oh – Oh man, he's trying to lug this fucking tube. So this is better be good. This is gonna really creep him the fuck out. But holy fuck, you know he gets like pe random people to help him. Yes, and in the in the institute, I gotta believe he was eating mostly like yellow and gray and brown foods, which are not normally they're very high starch and they're not very high in protein. So like, how did he build up the muscles to like <laughs> steal this car and then have to weigh this tombstone? And he's throwing it. He must have. He's driving this like county like station wagon ambulance hearse type vehicle like how does that thing not ride low in the suspension it's a dead giveaway and how come so, at one point they're looking for michael myers but no one says like be on the lookout for this fucking stolen car anyway <laughs> you should watch the rob zombie halloweens now that you've seen that and you have uh, a good like well there's a lot of halloweens but the first one is the best in my opinion rob zombies halloween um to me makes more sense and it kind of explains why it gives more of a reason why Michael Myers is the way that he is, in my opinion, because like, is it is it a remake? John is that what it is? OK, yeah. So Rob Zombie did uh, it kind of follows the plot line. So um, Laurie Strode is it's like reconfigured, but yeah, it's the same plot, basically. And um, the sheriff's daughter they survive the first attack and then, but she, then she actually gets murdered and like the sheriff adopted this girl who ends up being the sister that he didn't kill. Like it's very good. And um, it's more of like in John Carpenter's version and some of the other remakes that have come about, Michael Myers is like this, um, there's this mystery, like supernatural, he won't die type thing. Like you can't kill him, but he's just a man. He's not a, demon or a ghost but in rob zombies films it like he's just mentally ill 
Yeah. So that was, and it, it just makes more sense. That, that was my take. And that's what made the whole, you know, no matter how many times he gets shot and stabbed and falls out of a window, he's still alive. Like that's the, that's the terror for me. And you can't keep going back to that. Well, uh, because then it's like, well, he's just this immortal ghost thing. And now you're, you're kind of switching genres. The idea of an escape mental patient is yeah. more grounded, more realistic. But let me ask you this, generally speaking, as a former police officer and as someone who knows how shit works and as someone who solved plenty of crimes and seen terrible things, do you still enjoy movies to the same extent? Or are you like me where you're just like, well, typical, no one's talking to dispatch. You know, this, this problem would be solved if they would only call dispatch. <laughs> They're sitting around with this problem. What the hell do we do? Well, you, you talk to a dispatcher and it would fucking solve that issue. In horror genre, I don't care about that because I just enjoy escaping. I use horror as an escape mechanism. So I just immerse myself in the world that I'm watching, but other genres like action or drama or um, like a, even just like a suspenseful, like a psychological thriller type of movie. Yeah. If that kind of shit does bother me, like that would never fucking happen. That doesn't make any sense. Like, yeah, I do kind of point it out. I'm sure it's very annoying to the people I watch with. (laughs) That, they who kind aren't of, law they enforcement kind of, they kind of deserve it though like they there's all these shows that purport to uh you know kind of tell the truth of what it's like and uh you know whether it's uh law and order which tr- strives for realism which is not especially lately it's terrible um or even like really strict procedural shows like dragnet like it's not really accurate of what a lot of policing is like um but uh i i recently uh binged watched a few episodes of the rookie with nathan fillion and as i'm sitting there watching i'm like yeah that's pretty accurate and then i'm like nope that would never happen nope that's wrong 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 (laughs) like i mean i'm like like they'll read a license plate i'm like oh they at least know phonetics i'm like good job for that and then you know the next thing you know like uh, there's an episode like seven or eight nathan fillion sees this kid drowning in a pool grabs the kid out of the pool and takes it to the nearest firefighter to get cpr and it's just like that would never fucking happen so that's not how that would work. You would to get the kid out, start CPR, call on the radio, and the firefighters would run to you. So it's just an example of how uh, media portrays police work so badly. Tell your pup I said hello. I apologize. <laughs> going to go ahead and mute you just while the dog's baying. Uh, that leads me to my most major point, though, Kendra, and uh, you are still here, is that uh, true crime podcast uh, – something that we've been doing past couple of weeks uh, is to prepare for these shows or to help prepare to have any idea what I'm talking about. I listen to these other podcasts, but I listen to them with an eye towards criticism or I should say an ear. And the reason for that is, is that, you know, I've, uh, I've been around criminals. I was a correctional officer for six years. So I spent serious amounts of time with the kinds of people that are featured as suspects and convicted persons in podcasts. Like a lot of these podcasts, you could tell that they've never met a criminal mastermind or a criminal person. They all think of them as this Hannibal Lecter sort of person from Silence of the Lambs. I know what, what criminals are like. Also, as a 911 dispatcher, I have a pretty good insight on how cops work, what cops' mentalities are, how cops solve crimes, what resources they need, what steps they take, how long things take. And for this case, I'm, exp- I'm especially excited because the area that this takes place in, this goes uh, out to uh, Lyon in Lincoln County, Minnesota, in the year 2008, I'm just going to tell you, I've been there. So I know a lot about, 
I know a lot about what it is like there. I'm listening to podcasters uh, who have differing opinions that are totally divorced from the reality of rural policing. We'll get into that. Uh, Kendra and I are planning a full-blown breakdown where both of us are shouting that we're both mad at separate things, and we just, we're just <laughs> we so mad we won't give each other the space to do that. Uh, before I we kick off the case, though, uh, the, the disappearance of Brandon Swanson, I just wanted to mention our sponsors, because if you like this show and if you hate other shows, you should go ahead and go over to ghostbed.com and use the offer code WOLFPACK. Ghostbed is a company that is all about getting uh, affordable and comfortable mattresses out there to the entire earth. They're making it easy uh, and for people all over to get these things. They're high-quality mattresses. Uh, you can get them with 0% down, 0% financing. And even if you have uh, basic uh, white girl true crime coffee and Ugg boots credit, you can go and get one of these ghost beds. Ugg boots. Okay. That's, you took it too far. Are you pro Ugg boots? No. Um, I'm a Doc Martens kind of person. Okay. I'm anti-Ugg boots, <laughs> just like you. So pump the brakes over there. Use your Doc Martens. Don't put that on me. <laughs> use your Doc Martens to pump the brakes over there. So any, anyway, <laughs> so they have all kinds of uh, great technology. They have adjustable mattresses. They have uh, cooling sheets, cooling pillows. They're designed to keep you comfortable all night long, as Eric likes to say. It sleeps so good, it's scary. And, of course, Kendra, we love them because they love us. They love first responders. They love dispatchers, police officers. Even firemen fall into the realm of unconditional love from Ghostbed. Uh, and we uh, love them also, of course, because, Kendra, they are the only mattress throughout the entire earth which is made in the good old USA. 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 <laughs> You're so close on that one. That was the closest one ever. I don't think we were. You stopped. You stopped. Threw me off. Well, you know. I was morphing like... into Officer Randy. Oh, yeah. Uh, Officer Randy, for those of you who don't understand uh, Kendra's alter ego, go back and listen to Patreon. Uh, we have a couple episodes where we team up there to do fun stuff. Or just prior episodes. Patreon's another way you can get more failure stuff. We appreciate you uh, paying more for the uh, what is essentially slightly more bonus content. It also supports <laughs> us, keeps us going. Folks, it is a business. And if the money stops, if, if ghost beds like uh, we've had a good run and we're calling it quits. And if, pay, if no one subscribes to Patreon, then uh, what I'm doing is slavery. And I'm going to say right now, I'm going to go and say I am anti-slavery, <laughs> even for me. <laughs> so... Uh, if you're if you're against slavery, support Ghostbed. <laughs> Obvious, you know, clear line of uh, logic there. If you if you know, I'm not saying if you don't if you buy from Sealy mattresses or something that your your slavery ethics are out of. You whack. might. I'm not saying that, but if you, you might be though, because where is it being made? We don't. Yeah, not we don't even USA. know. Bangladesh, Bhutan, some country where some poor. You know, 11-year-old kid has to go to work to feed his family. We need to put that kid Quite out of safe. business so that he does not have income for his family and buy ghost beds because they're made right here in the United States of America, where we have we have prohibited child <laughs> slavery since 1975. So, <laughs> <laughs> so bottom line is buy a ghost bed. Buy a ghost bed. Use the offer code Wolfpack. I believe our our offer code is good for 40 percent. Frequently, uh, ghost bed though they have deals that are even better than that because they're serious about getting ghost beds out there to the masses. And if you see a better deal, just remember in the comments section, remember to put down Wolfpack or Failure to Stop or something so that they know that Eric Tansy is and the gang is the reason why you came. That will support the podcast. That will keep us going. Kendra, 
I've delayed long enough. It's been about 15 minutes. I love Missing Persons Case. One of my favorite shows is uh, ID Discoveries Disappeared. I love any Missing Persons Case from Unsolved Mysteries back in the day. They're, for true crime, they're, they're some of the most interesting cases. You know, with a murder, there's usually, you know, you have mm-hmm. a suspect, you have a conviction. It's usually the why. There's so many uh, open-ended questions that will never be answered about disappeared people. And uh, the case of Brandon Swanson is definitely one of those. So I'll go ahead and, and yield the microphone to you. Tell us about the story. It, it's not a, a terribly long story, but it is an interesting one. And then, uh, and then we'll dive in on breaking it down. Go ahead. Okay, so as you said, it's Brandon Swanson, missing persons case. Um, it's still not solved. Brandon has not been found. Um, it's <clears throat> a case that takes place in uh, 2008, May 13th. Classes, he's in college and his classes are out. He decides he's going to go for a party, couple parties, let loose a little bit. He goes to a town called Canby. Um, he goes to a party there. He leaves that party. He goes to another party in the town of Lind. And you said these were, these are both in the same county, right? Or are these, we're in like three different counties in this story. The three counties eventually get involved. Canby is actually in Mm -hmm. Lincoln County and it's right over the county line. If you're going east, you go into the much more populated Lyon County to the east. This is all in, in Southwest Minnesota. Yes. Okay. So he is probably there a little bit after midnight. He decides to leave uh, the party and go home, essentially. While he's driving home, he gets his car stuck in a ditch. Records show that he called a bunch of people before he ended up calling his parents. So I'm assuming he was trying to get some help before he had to call his mom and dad. He's 19 years old. So He's an adult, but he's still kind of in that, like, just graduated high school phase. You know, I don't want to get in trouble with my parents or make them upset type thing. Well, he eventually calls them anyway, tells them what's going on. He tells them he's in between Lind and Marshall, where Marshall is where his parents live. That's where he was headed home. Should I throw up the map? Please. I can't see it. But you could throw it up for the people that are The people that are, <laughs> are listening watching. can't see, but I'll, I'll do do my best uh, to kind of <laughs> zoom as you talk. So this is the, the city of Marshall. This is where Brandon is from. This is in um, mm-hmm. uh, Lyon County, Minnesota. Go ahead. So <clears throat> he's on the phone with his, his mom and dad and um, tells them where kind of where he thinks that he's at. Again, between Lind and Marshall. Uh, I don't think Lind is super far away. It's probably like seven to 10 miles away from Marshall. Depending on where um, he lives in Marshall. Yeah. But it, it's yeah. about that far. It's this diagonal road. It's yeah. going Southwest out of Marshall goes to the small town of Lind. goes past a golf course and that's where you are in Lind. Go ahead. Is that 68? Is that what that highway is? Uh, this highway is uh, it's County road 23 is what it is from Lind to Marshall. This would be a, okay. a, a two-lane blacktop county highway. Mm-hmm. Okay, so <clears throat> his parents are telling him that they're going to essentially come get him. And they go to the area on this stretch of highway where Brandon is telling them that he's at. And they get there and they can't find him anywhere. They're still on the phone with him and he's telling them, like, I'm right here. My car is in the ditch. 
I'm walking along the road. You're not here. So you went to the wrong place, essentially. And they're kind of getting frustrated with each other, arguing back and forth. Um, eventually, they're flashing their lights, trying to see if he can see him. Oh, my gosh. I apologize for the dog. Just keep going. But they're okay. They're flashing their lights, trying to see if they can find him. He's still nowhere to be found. He's he's trying frantically to tell them, like, he knows the landmark that he's at. He tells them where it's at. They, anyway, they can't find him anywhere. So he says that he's going to go to the nearest town. He sees lights in the distance, basically. And he tells them that's Lind. He's going towards Lind. He's going to meet them at a bar. And they'll get the car problem solved in the morning. So... He's on the phone with his dad still this whole time. He's walking along the road. He tells them, um, I'm going to cut through this field. It'll be shorter. So while he's on the phone with his dad, he's still cutting through these fields, hopping these fences. And eventually in the conversation, he says, oh, shit, and stops talking. His dad's trying to get his attention. They're like hanging up and calling back, thinking maybe he dropped his phone and the the lights will, the lights and the vibrations will wake him up or something. I don't know. He'll help him find the phone. But that doesn't work. Um, And they still don't know where he's at. They've gone up and down this highway trying to find him. They cannot locate his vehicle. Um, They haven't heard from him. And they don't, they have no idea where he's at. He's been walking through fields trying to get to this place, uh, this bar. And this is a really like rural farm area of Minnesota. So he could literally be pretty much anywhere, especially if he's walking through fields and stuff like that. So essentially his parents are like, well, let's go home. And in the morning, they go to the sheriff's office, the Lincoln County Sheriff's Office, and report him missing. When they get there... It was Lyon County, but go ahead. Was it? Are you sure? It was Lyon uh, because they believed that he was between Lind and Marshall. Uh, Marshall is the largest city and the seat of Lyon, so he should be in Lyon. Okay. So they go to the Lyon County Sheriff's Office and report him missing. Um, reports and sources say that they were met with some, like, not resistance, but, like, the sheriff's office didn't really care, quote-unquote. And they basically told him, well, he's an adult, and, you know, it's not that much, you know, it's not that much danger involved in whatever you're saying, or whatever. They kind of blow it off, I guess. Well, I mean, so... But they they don't, but... (laughs) Just retrospect, right? Okay, so we know Brandon mm-hmm. disappeared without a trace in May of 2008. That wasn't information the police had at that time. The information was is right. that you have an overdue traveler, <clears throat> and he was on the phone, and he said, oh, shit. Well, we, 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 that's so much more spooky, noting, noticing now or knowing now that Brandon is missing. At the time, it's just like, what does that mean? Oh, shit, the battery died. Oh, shit, he dropped the phone. Oh, shit, there, here comes a police officer. Oh, shit, here comes someone that can pick me up. Oh, shit. You know, I fell. You know, there's no way to know what that means. Mm-hmm. It's not. 
it's more ambiguous than you think it is. Only through retrospect can you see where that is definitely a problem. But at the time, you know, I understand, you know, Brandon needs help. It's still not indicative necessarily that anyone's in any immediate danger or that a crime has taken place. Kendra. No, and I'm keeping it very vague and summarized intentionally because we're going to get into more of the details and trying not to start a conversation before we get there. Sorry. Um, but no, 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 you're good. I'm just saying this is why I'm just going through this really quickly because we're going to get into more detail. But let's get into it. Essentially, <laughs> they they do eventually conduct a search for Brandon. Um, obviously, it's unsolved, so they never find him. But and it's the case is still open. Um, that's the that's the bare bones gist of the case. So you got this college kid. He's partying with his friends. He's driving home. He crashes his car, drives off the ditch. It's immobile. He calls his parents for help. At this point, it's like 2 o'clock in the morning. It's, it's after 2 o'clock in the morning when he calls his parents. So he's walking in the dark in a rural area. He decides to go off the course, like off the highway, and gets lost in the fields, essentially. Parents report him missing. They don't find him. That's pretty much the gist of, of, yeah. of this case. And when we were researching for the case, we uh, came across a couple of reports and podcasts that have their own takes on what happened and theories and things like that. And that's kind of where we <laughs> where we got our anger from in this case. Yeah. We're, we're pretty angry because there's a lot of people that are not satisfied with the police response in this case. And uh, to their mm -hmm. point, uh, Minnesota actually changed the law uh, saying that uh, if someone reports a crime uh, or excuse me, a missing persons that police have to begin investigating promptly, uh, which sounds very good. Uh, however, the truth is you probably don't need a law for a police department to begin investigating promptly. Um, we can go back and we could discuss some of the reasons why um, an investigation may not have begun promptly. But let me just run you through this scenario. You're 19, you're 20, you're 21, and you're having a fight with your mom or some kind of spat or something. And uh, you go a few days without talking to her. Should, a, should a, a mom be able to call 911 or call dispatch, call me and say, like, I haven't heard from my son in a while. And, uh, and then we should, we should spend police resources trying to find that person because they're having a fight and, and she's being ignored. And then we find that person and say, hey, call your mom. Because that's very, very, very common. In fact, we get, we get many calls for missing persons. I take them daily. And it's, uh, the report always includes language like it's very unusual for them to be disappearing. You know, we had this uh, circumstance that causes it uh, to be suspicious. I always ask, in fact, I'm like, is there anything going on with this person? Are they depressed? Do they have any medical problems? Uh, you know, when the last time you heard from them, when, when was that? And what was the message? And I'll even ask the people, like, what, what's your gut feeling? You know, like, what is it that you can tell me about this that I can't tell just from facts? And it's because I do take into consideration that people know the family members, that they know the situation. And I hear that a lot from them. So the idea that uh, police officers just heard that there was a situation going on with her baby, her 19-year-old baby, which that's a whole other thing I could unpack, is how mothers think that they have extraordinary legal powers over their children and for all time, no matter how old they are. 
we all, we always do care, but there are certain limitations to what we can do. Kendra, were you ever called to investigate a, a missing persons case, and uh, you were you were faced with something similar like this, where you weren't sure that anything was wrong, and or maybe even the law itself or or resources kept you from investigating, maybe in the manner that mom or dad would want you to. Yeah, definitely a lot of the kind of that gray area of adulthood where you're still maybe in school. Um, Maybe you even still live with mom and dad, like in Brandon's case, but you're an adult and they would just leave in their vehicle that didn't belong to them. That was one of the common things where I think moms would get pissed that like what you're saying, they think they have a little bit more control over their child because it's their child and they can't block free movement basically. And they would come report like my kid took, got in their car and left three days ago and won't answer my phone calls. I want to report them missing. This isn't like them. This isn't, you know, this is weird or whatever. And the more you investigate, the more you realize, Oh, you guys got into an argument and you don't like the fact that she took off in a car that you pay or that's in your name. Um, and they don't have to talk to you. And usually the response to me telling them that was not very good. And I was, I would try to be as sensitive as possible, but it's like, Hey, um, your kid's not a kid anymore right? and your kid can do whatever they want. Cause they're an adult. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> this, if you don't like that, then kick them out of your house. Right. Exactly. In this case though, what we have is caring parents and we have a child or excuse me, a 19 year old mm-hmm. child. I'm guilty of it myself. <laughs> He's calling for help. And so that's where the criticism comes from is that his last contact right. with his parents was for help. Here's the thing though. On its face value, not knowing how it, it turned out, what we have here is someone who's lost. You know, they're confused about where they are. They're overdue. Um, and uh, so they're going to turn up. You know, uh, we have no reason to believe that this, oh, shit, you know, was, I mean, the idea that, like, someone just pulled over in a van and is going to traffic Brandon to sexual slavery in El Salvador is uh, something you see on TV, and, and it <laughs> sounds very common. But uh, out here in rural Minnesota, where I've been many times, uh, that's it's actually not that common. In fact, the idea that he would come across anyone at all, nefarious or otherwise, is incredibly remote. Uh, I can say that with confidence because Brandon, like I said, I've been there. He lives in a county that's actually twice the size of mine in terms of population, and that's a big aspect of this case that we'll discuss. But you're out there in the middle of nowhere. This is all farmland. There's not people wandering around. There's not people who have hooks for hands who are just waiting to do terrible things to people whose cars are disabled or whatever. It's very, very unlikely that anything is actually, anything bad has befallen them. My major worry would actually be the weather. I know that this is May. This is still Minnesota. Uh, I I have seen huge snowstorms (coughs) in May before. It's not uncommon that you could have one last blast of winter as late as the first couple weeks of May. Um, there's also another aspect of the weather that I'll discuss when I disclose what I believe my theory is for where Brandon is. I believe the weather's related to that. But the biggest mm-hmm. the biggest uh, thing that I'm hearing from people who are not in police and certainly who are not in rural policing is like, why don't you start doing something? Okay, well, what I say to you is, what do we need to start doing? If we, d- if we don't know where he is, where do you look first? Okay, we believe he's between... Lind and Marshall, that is about a five five mile stretch of that county road. But let's say let's say for the sake of argument that Brandon is one mile off of where he believes that he is. 
And I will say that that's very, very reasonable thing to happen. I take 911 calls from people every day who say, they'll tell me where they are because I ask them. I need to know where they, where they are. And they'll tell me something that is wildly different. They'll say, hey, I'm traveling northbound on uh, Interstate 94 and uh, I just hit a deer. I'm like, well, are you sure? Because Interstate 94 only travels east and west. So there's no way you're going that way on it. Um, also, when someone's having a 911 legit emergency, the first thing that goes away, even if they're on their regular commute every single day, is their sense of spatial orientation. What direction are they facing? Where are they going? Where exactly are they at? Many other podcasts made a, a bunch out of this is that when you're out there, all the roads are laid out like a grid. I showed, I don't know if you could see that on the, on the, mm -hmm. on the YouTube, but the, the, all the roads are confusing because they're just numbers. Well, as it turns out, sorry, rural addressing actually does make sense. The, all the avenues there in, uh, in Lyon County are, are all laid out north to south. All the streets go east to west. Every mile, it increases as you go east. Like if you're looking at a map and you're, you're looking at it with the north orientation at the top, as you're reading left to right, the numbers increase. So like the numbers are actually laid out in a very methodical way. It's not confusing to someone that understands rural addressing. I understand the common person doesn't really get that. I have to explain it to people. I have to explain it to firefighters a lot who don't get it. Uh, <laughs> but to finally drive home the point, I took a call, a 911 call recently from a, from a retired firefighter who came upon a crash that was serious. And his his position that he gave me, he was very he was far off. Now, this is someone that understands rural addressing. This is someone who's done this before. And he was off by more than, than two miles. Now, I know what you're saying. What is two miles? If he's off by one mile, we have to, we have to remember how big geometry is. And I think people are underestimating the size of this county by an order of magnitude. To my point, area equals pi r squared. So if he's off by five miles, if he is, if he is displaced on the face of the earth five miles from where we think he is to where he actually is, the distance between Lind and Marshall... Our search, mar search area for that is 78 square miles. It's 78 square miles if he's just off by five miles. We don't know the direction. We have to search a complete circle that's 78 square miles. Now, you can subtract for that by saying, well, he's only on gravel roads. That's great. That's why it's a critical error, <laughs> in more, in, and it's a critical error in more ways than one when you leave the vehicle behind and go through a field. Because mm -hmm. now, you know, we can still subtract the city of Marshall. We know he's not in downtown Marshall. We know he's not in Lind. He's somewhere. So we can subtract some. But if he's even off by five miles, we have 78 square miles to check. Um, that's, I don't, that's a really big area. The town that I'm in right now is 10. Yeah. And they have, they have a police department and like, it's, it's a decent sized town and it's, it's only 10 square miles, 78 square miles in a rural place. Mm -hmm that's mostly farmland right is crazy but that's Kendra, crazy Kendra since he knows the road so well even though he's 19 and he's only been driving for a couple of years I get that he's from the area he's from Marshall he works at a grocery store in Marshall he drives to Canby about 45 minutes to go to school mm -hmm. he obviously has been to Lynn before he has friends that go there I'm sure it's probably I would be surprised if some of that was in a unified school district and he has no, no has, knows people from there he's still hanging out with from with people from high school at age 19 um, but why is he? Uh, why is he not on the county road? Why is he on a gravel road in the first place? I had a theory about that. Why is it that uh, there's a straight shot to go from Lynn to Marshall, and he's just not on that road at all? So I'm sure you'll agree with my theory because I think we have the same theory. But um, he is 19. He has left two 
college parties, both of which he had alcohol at. Um, this was confirmed by some of the people that were at these parties. They claim that he did not drink enough to get so intoxicated he couldn't drive. But all of these people at this party are probably his age. And right. um, being someone who was a, a heavier drinker at 19 years old, <laughs> sorry, mom, dad, but there's no way I would have been able to discern mm -hmm. if I'm also drunk. Right. Uh, if my friends were okay to drive. So I, I don't know how reliable that, that is. It is the confirmed amount of alcohol is that he had a shot of whiskey and a couple of beers. If you're not, I mean, if he's kind of a smaller dude too, like yeah. I'm not going to get into alcohol metabolism, but he's only like five, six, one twenty. Yeah. He's a small, and he's guy. 19 and he has, doesn't had a long history right. of drinking cause he's only 19. I would say just based on his size and his history, he's a lightweight when it comes to alcohol. Now, now, now what, his, go ahead. go ahead. Okay. Um, Speaking of history, he has also had a, a DUI. Uh, he was 17, so it's not um, it's not convicted the same as a regular DUI, but it he was guilty of it. Um, it's on his record. So he's driving a decent amount away, and there's really only one uh, main road that goes through Marshall from where he was coming from. And the time of night, it was after midnight, he probably was trying to avoid law enforcement. Right. And Taking um, the back one of the things very common. Yes. Here. And DUIs are very common here. Yes. And that is, um, I say yes, like I know that, but I'm agreeing with you. <laughs> um, that is something that I would have done too. I grew up in a rural area and I would gladly drive 40 minutes out of my way to avoid um, law enforcement. Cause out, you're going to drive 40 minutes everywhere anyway. That's not that, crazy of a drive when you're from a place like that a lot of the podcasts were like why the fuck would he go so far out of his way it doesn't make any sense it makes perfect sense everything's far away from he's you drunk when, when you live here by the way it's like if you're going from a yes. to b you're committed to going there and uh frankly i have yes. to like schedule when, when i'm going to do groceries to maximize my fuel efficiency that's just how far away things are uh but yep he's he has this uh he has this prior dui i believe he did a year in probation the first thing he does when he calls his mom and dad, he says, you know, I crashed the car. I'm okay. You know, and they have this long conversation, mm -hmm. which uh, upon questioning, they ask, you know, mom and dad, did he, did he appear to be intoxicated? Going back to the friends, talking about mom and dad, what are the reasons why they would not want to say Brandon was for sure intoxicated? Number one, they don't want him to get a bust for DUI. Number two, they don't want to reduce uh, sympathy or concern for him. We don't want to say, well, he was drinking and driving and being stupid, so whatever happens to him is his fault. We wouldn't say that on this podcast, but people are afraid that that's the attitude that they would take, that if we say, well, he was out right. drinking and driving, all of a sudden we're not worried about our, our precious boy. We're, we're out there looking for someone who was putting people's lives in danger, his own life in danger, doing something stupid, uh, trying to get away with it by going on these back roads, which is extremely common, by the way. I Actually, we had a call just last night at my agency for this gravel road where uh, a, a guy rear-ended uh, uh, some kind of ag equipment. Uh, the deputy breathalyzed him, and he he blew a .375. Like, he's extremely drunk. And so what was he doing in that little gravel road? He was avoiding uh, a state highway uh, so that he wouldn't get busted for that. So that mm -hmm. that is extremely common. In fact, in my state, 
They the, the ads for not drinking and driving that always air on the radio and TV during the holidays. They're like, I they they always have the mind of the drunk. They're like, it's only a few miles away. I'll just take the back roads. Like everybody knows you're going to take the back roads. The police officers would love to interdict that, but as we just mentioned, in a five five radial area of searching, how many back roads are there? So you can't you can't reasonably patrol an area and go down all those gravel roads. That's why it will always be an effective way of doing it. It's why people are, are not going to stop doing it. And of course, people do crash. They they go off the side, they go into ditches, and sometimes they freeze to death and never get found. So it's particularly dangerous. Mm-hmm. But here's, here's one more thing, Kendra, and I'll let you comment on this because you've probably investigated a DUI. I know at least one case where that poor guy was like, I'm going to jail. Uh, I love that story. <laughs> Uh, but uh, so you take a lightweight, you give him, let's say, just three beers, which is not a lot of beers, and a shot of whiskey. Let's say he does this and he goes, well, I better be heading home. What's happening to his blood alcohol level as he leaves if he had alcohol promptly before getting in the car? Someone could see him walk out the door and do the whole alphabet backwards, but that might not be the case that he's in after he travels down the road. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're, the way that your body metabolizes anything um, is not immediate. So as you're as you're driving, the alcohol is getting the effects of the alcohol are increasing. Your blood alcohol content is also increasing, and you become impaired. And that's it takes. I think they they kind of average it out like an hour per drink. So if you have a shot of whiskey and three beers, hypothetically, it would take you about five to six hours to completely metabolize all of that out of your system. And the drive from the drive from where he was coming from, this is a little weird, so I'm going to try to explain this. Here's Canby. I, for people listening, I apologize. You can't see this. Here's Canby. Here's Marshall. And then just south of Marshall would be Lind. So he comes from Canby. He goes all the way down to Lind past Marshall for the second party. Um I don't know exactly how long of a drive that is. I think it's like 30, 40 minutes maybe. So he's had time to get a little intoxicated from the first party to the second one. And when he set, tells his parents he's in between Lind and Marshall, he thinks that that's where he's at because that's where he was, you know, that that's the logical route if you if you can see the map. But if you're trying to avoid law enforcement, you're going to be taking a bunch of back roads and you're not going to want to come up through the town, right through the main drag. <laughs> um, so to me, he probably didn't realize how drunk he was. Um, and then, of course, you know, his parents were saying that he didn't sound intoxicated. Um, we know him. He was not drunk. Uh, I could put on a really good sober voice when I was a child. When a child, when I, when I was younger, when you were drinking, and I would you get were drunk. Five, yeah, you would, you know. <laughs> yeah, I could put on a very good sober voice. I knew how to do it. Um, to where my parents didn't really couldn't really tell if they called me, like if I was at a friend's house, you know. Um, so that's that's one one thing that I thought about when they were talking. I'm like, he's a, he's a college kid. He's an expert at this. Yeah. Um. Also. There was a time lapse that was discussed during the case of when he initially left Lind, allegedly left Lind, to go back home. 
there's about like what, like an hour and a half maybe before he calls his parents. Mm-hmm. And this was a, this was something that a lot of podcasts like harp on because they're like, did he go through a wormhole? Like, well, they're assuming that he went from A to B. They're assuming that the phone records show that he called multiple friends between the time that he left and the time that he called his parents. It's very plausible that he went and met more people. Maybe he got high. That's, that's a theory that I thought about. Um, I, I, I'm not, I don't know much about being high, but (laughs) I don't know if that kind of levels you out. I'm not really sure. Um, but another theory that kind of makes sense to me, if, if he went off the road trying to make this turn, um, if it wasn't as gentle as maybe we think it is, and he bonked his head, Mm -hmm. it's possible he was out for a while and then woke up and obviously he's not going to sound drunk. I mean, I, who knows? You're right. Nobody that, really knows. That is a good theory that if he went in the ditch and hit his head, maybe he was unconscious for some amount of time, which usually it's it's not long. But there's also mm-hmm. all kinds of theories about why his glasses were left behind in the vehicle. And uh, I know that you mentioned that glasses drive you nuts as someone that wears them. Uh, glasses can interfere with your concentration if you're trying to figure out where you are. If you're out here driving mm-hmm. at night, I'm going to tell you, glasses aren't going to help you that much because you turn on your high beams and you can see about maybe 50 yards in front of you. There's really nothing else to see. I don't know what, what glasses would really help. I mean, I guess it depends on what, you know, what was going on with him. I know he's legally blind in one eye. I don't know what's going on with his other eye. Um, glasses, you know, generally will help, but I, if there's nothing out there to see other than you staying on the road, which he didn't even manage to do, it could just be that he didn't have his glasses on for that reason. But it's also possible, you know, if the glasses were in the center console, I could see him taking them off. If they were on the floor, they might've fallen off his face after a crash, but we don't know where the glasses were in the car. And I, yeah, that's another point that I've mentioned to you before where it's like, I haven't, I have an astigmatism. So at night when I'm driving, um, lights, especially it's worse when you're in the dark, which he would have been cause he's on a rural road. Um, when your eyes adjust to the darkness and you have your glasses on, if headlights come at you or a street light or any sort of light source, it does like a star effect and you can't, you can't see right. anything. It, it makes it really difficult. It like blinds you. Right. Um, the only way for me to fix that is to take my glasses off when I drive. Cause it's the glasses that do that. It's not my eyeballs doing that. Right. It's, um, a, it's a glare or, or yeah, refraction, something there that. Yes. And if he's intoxicated, I, who knows how intoxicated he was, but if you're feeling a little like, Oh, the middle line, there's two of them. Uh, what do you do? You close one eye, Yeah. you know? Um, <laughs> you, <laughs> I don't know why that works, but it does. And I'm speaking from, um, experience of being a uh, a miscreant as a nineteen year old. Well, I, that's how I would drive home. I have had you know, du- I have like, had double vision before because of a neurological problem. It's a, usually a, a, a <laughs> symptom that I'm about to have a seizure. But uh, your brain can't process the stereoscopic vision. You're getting camera A and camera B, and through the miracle of perception, you're you're putting that together into a, a, a reality in which you have depth perception. If if the mm-hmm. the wires are crossed and you're getting both of them, it's almost you know. Uh, it's like crossing your eyes or whatever. You're going to get both images. And of course, you want to know which one is, is true. Well, it's just like sighting in a gun. You know, you just go straight down. You can use your eye just to see what is actually accurate from your frame of reference of one eye. So that's why you would do that. 
Right. And so that would explain the glasses. Um, if he did actually crash the car, um, that would explain it as well. My glasses fall off my face all the time. My, uh, it's uh, actually really annoying. My theory about the missing time was this, is that he, and I'm going to tell you, because I, I actually drive home on gravel roads through the darkness every night, just like Brandon did. So I'm going to tell you what it's like. There's such a thing <laughs> as highway hypnosis, right? If you're tired, if mm-hmm. you're intoxicated, which I do not do not know anything about because <laughs> I don't drink and drive. Um, mm-hmm. But as you're driving along, uh, if you lose track of time, uh, you don't have any landmarks to go by. Like I said, you're crossing these gravel roads every mile. Uh, so that's kind of the same. If you're, if you're listening to a podcast, even, uh, you can, you can overshoot your destination because you've lost all sense of time, particularly if you are trying to navigate by time instead of landmarks. And if you don't understand like the numbering system of streets, that's the only reason I ever found home was because I happen to be a 911 dispatcher here and I understand where the streets are in relation to each other. So I'm like, well, I know that I live by this street. So if I'm going to reduce that number to go home, then I have to go this direction. Yes. He's 19. He's an average person. He doesn't have that skill set. Even spatial awareness is a certain kind of intelligence that some people simply don't have. Like how I don't have interpersonal intelligence. He, he might not have spatial intelligence. Okay. <laughs> so that's, that's entirely possible, right? Um, mm, yeah. So if you lose his track of time, he's got highway hypnosis. I'm guessing he probably was turning around several times trying to figure out where the hell he was at, find a road that he recognizes, find an oil road. In fact, it was the act of, of getting on a K-turn and saying, I'm definitely going the wrong direction. I need to reverse course. That's where he got snagged and his, his vehicle got hung up, high-centered or whatever, so that part of his, his, his wheels on his green Chevy Lumina weren't on the ground. So he's, he's high-centered, mm-hmm. he can't move. Um, the other thing is, is that uh, he, so he starts calling his parents for help. What, you know, so he, that's a natural thing to do, I guess, if you love your parents and your parents love you back. I can only speculate because I've never called my parents needing help. But um, if you if it becomes apparent at some point that what you're in is in an emergency, 911 becomes the thing to do. Now, I understand that you're constantly trying to minimize the situation you're in because you're drunk. You don't want to get caught with that. You already are in trouble about the car. You really want to find yourself, but failing that, you want your parents to find you. Now, his parents, he got on the phone with them. They talked for like, what was it, 47 minutes, during which time they were trying to figure out. A long time, yeah. His parents are driving up and down this oil road between Marshall and Lind and uh, probably neighboring areas because it's not that long of a road, flashing lights saying, hey, do you see this? And they don't they don't have sight contact. But of course, as we'll find out later, uh Brandon's not there. Uh, so that, that part doesn't work. He's getting frustrated. At one point, he hangs up on mom. Mom calls him back to say, hey, you know, we're frustrated too. He obviously is super frustrated. He's lost. He can't help himself anymore. And his parents can't help him. He's completely dependent on them to bail him out. And I'm sure he was frustrated. I'm like, I told you where I was, but they can't find him. Now, mm-hmm. as I said earlier, people commonly don't know where they are, even in their ideal circumstances, in daytime. On their ordinary road of travel, completely sober. People don't know where they're at. That's just something that happens. This is at night. This is an area that he doesn't know. I don't care what his father says. Like if he's driving on these back roads to intentionally avoid law enforcement, he's he's assuming a risk there because although they're laid out like a grid, it's often the case that geographic factors will make it so that your grid is incomplete. Like a river, for example. Like you can have a gravel road, but there's they don't build bridges on every single gravel road that goes over every river. Okay, you're going to have to go to an oil road to get over a bridge to cross a river. And as you may know, Minnesota is also the land of ten thousand lakes. So there's significant bodies of water in uh, 
Lyon County. It's not the wettest part of the state, but they do have some lakes and they do have some waterways and rivers are not uncommon. So um, he, he's out there and he's under less than a, under ideal circumstances. He doesn't want to get busted for a DOI, doesn't want to do the probation thing again. Uh, being 19, he's still underage. He can't drink at all anyway. So, I mean, he's, he knows the consequences he's facing are going to be more severe. So he's constantly minimizing the danger that he's in all the time. Um, and that's what leads him, I believe, to make a, a series of ever greater mistakes that led to <laughs> what happened to him. Case in point, drinking and driving. Yes. Taking the uh, the back roads, you're assuming some risk because, you know, what if you get a flat tire out there? You have no idea what can happen on a gravel road. There's, it's riskier, right? And then, uh, and then getting lost and then, you know, uh, being dependent on his parents. But in my mind, the, the biggest mistake that he made uh, was he saw some lights in the distance and he said, well, that's, that's the town of Lind, the one that I just came from. Never mind that he drove away from Lind, did a K turn. And I'm wondering, cause I'm, I'm just not there. I'm not, not in his shoes. Like what orientation are you that you think you're walking back to the town that you came from and right. factoring in the amount of time that you've been driving since Lind, how could that possibly be Lind? Unless you've been doing nothing but tight circles on this, you know, yes. Pac-Man style and all these grids if you've been driving for any amount of time, you can't be close to land. And uh, I'll tell you this too, because I drive home every night in dark gravel roads is that you will see lights from towns reflecting on low clouds at night. And uh, you'll see, and you'll, and I know the geography very well. Like I said, I've lived here many years and I dispatch here. So I'll see lights, you know, uh, reflecting off a bank of clouds. And I'll think, what city is that from here? And, I, and I'm like, my gosh, that's that's the major city for this area. That's 30 miles away. You know, I can see lights bouncing off the clouds and kind of illuminating this portion of the horizon. And I'm like, that seems really close. But then when I think about it, where I'm at, if I get out of this car and I average three miles an hour walking down a gravel road, which is walking pace, I'm like, I wouldn't get there till tomorrow afternoon. So you have no sense of really distance or depth at night when you're out here in the countryside because you don't have any nearer or far landmarks. All you have is is where you are now and what you can see in the dark, right? It's almost like how the yeah. moon looks really big when it's on the horizon because you can compare it to landmarks on the horizon. You can see it next to this building or this tree. Right. It's like, my God, the, the moon is so huge tonight. And then when it reaches the zenith of the sky, it's directly overhead. I'm like, ah, oh, the moon's tiny again. It's because there's there's no, there's no nothing there for you to compare it to. So you can't tell the distance mm -hmm. or the size of the moon. It works the same way at night on Earth. You can't tell far away something. So now Brandon is going to walk towards the lights of what he thinks is Lind. The final critical error, like we, dis like we discussed, um, if we're, if we're searching for him only in five, in a radius of five miles, 78 square miles, we know he's on a road that's hugely subtractive in terms of the areas that we would need to patrol to find him. Uh, he, by going into fields, he's now opening up, you know, that, that hypothetical huge area in which we need to search for him. Um, the other thing that uh, just is a bad idea in terms of being lost and having someone search for you is that out here in the dark, Let's say the sun just, you know, you're, you're in a perpetual dark situation as we're about to be in the coming months. Two people could search for each other and never find each other because they can circle each other constantly. If you're lost and he's immobilized because his car can't move, the wisest thing to do is stay in the car until someone can come across the car. The car's on the side of the road. The car's fixed. Someone's bound to run into him eventually. I mean, even if it takes days, someone's eventually going to drive past him. The road's there for a reason. But if he's out there wandering around, hypothetically, he could he could wander indefinitely because no one would wander past him in a field. Um, you would, and yeah, he's not staying on the road. He's not. He staying got on the off road. the road. Uh, 
And uh, here's another danger he didn't consider is that now you're out there in the dark and walking across the field. As I mentioned earlier, these gravel roads don't have bridges that go over ri- rivers. Less than a mile away from my house, I could take a picture on my way to work if you like. I could show you where we have pasture lamb that's cut through by a smallish river. And what you actually have is a sudden drop off into a shallow body of water. I'll actually show the river that cuts through Lyon County. It's called the Yellow Medicine River. Here's a picture of it. Okay. And I know that you don't necessarily have the best information here for scale or how big this is or how far away. But if you look on the left side, you've got a a steep bank of at least, you know, 45, 50 degrees where you're falling straight down into a river. I can imagine someone saying, oh, shit, losing their foam and falling into the river. And even if it's not deep, you know, that the terrain is so rough. If he hits his head, if he gets separated from his phone, if he loses consciousness, even for a brief mm-hmm. amount of time, he's in serious trouble. First of all, from the fall, from the water, there's a drowning danger, but also from the temperature, Kendra. It's 40 degrees. Uh, the clothes list on the VICAP website says that he was wearing a polo. He was wearing a light jacket. Uh, he was wearing baggy jeans. Most of these items are probably going to be made out of cotton. If you're an outdoor survivalist, you're someone that likes to hike like you, Kendra, you probably know that cotton kills. What's the reason Mm -hmm. for that? It's because cotton fibers retain water more so than any other fabric. Uh, If you're hiking or things like that, they generally tell you to wear polyester or moisture wicking things because they dry out very quickly. If you don't believe me, just go do some laundry, (laughs) you know, hang up your clothes to dry, hang up a wet pair of jeans and hang or hang up uh, something that you would wear to the gym and athletic t-shirt. The gym, gym shirt's going to dry a lot faster. In fact, survivalists will say, and I learned this from Bear Grylls, of all people, because I used to watch his shows on Discovery. <laughs> but if you get wet and you're out in the middle of you know, Patagonia or Antarctica or somewhere, if you get wet, you are actually better off stripping your clothes off and being naked mm-hmm. because the density of the cold air has less uh, power to absorb heat from your body than water does. Cold water is so much more dense. That's why it stays in a pool and doesn't float around in the air. And to, draw, <laughs> to draw that 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 warmth out of your body. So if you're walking around in wet jeans and a wet shirt, mm-hmm. and it's 40 degrees in Minnesota, you can actually succumb to hypothermia. And as if being in the dark, very being, fast. Being yes, being in the dark, being lost, being intoxicated, being in the, in the middle of nowhere, being separated from your phone, not understanding the danger that you're in because of your wet clothes. And the confusion that sets on just from hypothermia, you're now in a situation where you can't make a decision at all. You you can't do yes. anything in that situation. He's actually now in a perfect storm of bad decisions made and now in a position where he can't make a decision to save his life. And to be honest with yeah, you. Yeah, you enter. Go ahead. That's what I think happened to him. I think he went into the water. And I don't think his phone necessarily went into the water because there's some talk about how they called it and how it would ring. Yeah. And he wouldn't answer it. You know, there's there's different aspects of, of how telephones work that sometimes the ring that you hear when you're dialing out is just a sound for you so that you know that your phone's working. Yes. It doesn't mean that anything's happening on the other side. Um, mm-hmm. So it's possible his phone's sitting out there in the bank and he went into the water, couldn't find it in the dark. Maybe you got swept down. I don't think that this, these things have fast currents here. Um, you'd have to go through a significant fall in order for their like a fall in the, in the in the river for there to be a current. And I don't think there are any out there. Right. Like I said, I've been in that area. I could be wrong. But if you get separated yeah. from that and he's wet, now he's just in danger of succumbing to the elements, even though it's, it's May. So I think, um, I definitely think he fell in some water. Um, some of the searches that happened after, um, 
and I know you, we, we had a brief discussion before about the dogs and how they're not always reliable. Um, but during the search, they did hit on some farm equipment. And one of the theories that was posed that I actually believe is that he fell in, it fell in the river, a river. <clears throat> and then because of everything you just listed with the temperature, you know, his wet clothing and everything, Within an hour or two, he would have probably been passing out from hypothermia or at least feeling like he wanted to lay down somewhere. Um, maybe the adrenaline rush from being cold initially and getting wet and like falling uh, led him to walk a ways. And then he found himself in a field. And the next morning, farmer ran him over and his body is in pieces somewhere. It's possible. That's I mean, May is a planting yeah. season here, particularly depending on how wet it's been or when when the snow finally went away. You, it's, mm-hmm. The start of the planting season is it can be it can be different, but but by May you're usually seeing planters. Uh, yeah, the equipment going out there. There's another podcast that kind of covered some instances of that happening. It could happen if he was unconscious or if he was uh, in bad shape. I could see something running him over. I think that's a little a little sensation and a little bit less likely than him going in the river, but it's definitely possible. The bloodhounds thing, uh, you know, we use dogs in police work to locate drugs, firearms, cell phones, any manner of things. Because a dog's nasal receptors are such that they're many, many fold times more powerful than a human being's. Like it was used to be explained to me like this. It's like if someone comes in from lunch from uh, Papa John's, what do you smell? You smell pizza. A dog smells bread. A dog smells cheese. A dog smells tomato paste. A dog smells pepperoni. A dog smells onions or whatever's on there. Dogs are very good at that, and they can find stuff that's crammed under a seat or inside a trap in a car. They can locate these things. But I don't think they're as good at finding people who are moving, uh, possibly getting wet. Uh, I know that one case in particular that was ruined by bloodhound evidence was the Scott and Lady P- L- Lacey Peterson case. The jury was fed a lot of mm-hmm. information about the bloodhounds in that case. I won't go into it because it's kind of drifting away from our topic. But I just don't think bloodhounds, um, I don't say that they're not useful at all, but ultimately they didn't find him. So I would dismiss anything really that the bloodhounds are saying in terms of his location. If he's out in the field, Kendra, I mean, you would find other materials. The machine's not going to obliterate that. There's still going to be bone fragments. There's still going to be, sorry, plenty of meat. There's going to sure. be clothes. There's going to be stuff that would, <laughs> that would survive. And it would, until the wind blows it away, it's going to stay there. Go ahead. Well, one of the holes in that, in my own theory, is that um, it, it would depend, A, on the farming equipment, um, because it's not like a wood chipper. I think it's possible um, some of the, the property where, the property where this farming equipment was, the uh, farm owner did not give permission for law enforcement to search. Um, which is well within their right, and I would not fault anyone for pre- for exercising their constitutional rights, regardless of the situation. Um, but it it is a good, th- it's a fun theory, not fun, but um, I guess one of the holes in it is that not the farming equipment doesn't necessarily just obliterate a body, like you said. The farmer may have even realized what there's something wrong. There's something hung up in my equipment and gone and checked and seen the body of a, of a boy, a 19 year old boy. But, um, the, I guess the dogs hitting on the farming equipment kind of 
threw me for a loop there, but um, it, it it's very possible that he just fell in the river and got swept away. He was unconscious or maybe passed out, whatever, drowned and swept away. Some of the podcasts were talking about how it dried up a little bit later, like a couple of years later or something like that. And they're like, why he would, they would have found him then. Well, how long is this river? Does it go through private property? Probably. Um, there, there's a myriad of reasons why a dried up river would still not produce any evidence. Well, and they were harping on why wouldn't they find his phone and keys? Like again, you're not look at the search it. area. You're not going to find the phone and keys. You should give up on that. Anyone no. who says you're going to find a phone in a body of water, you're out of your mind. You're not. Even <laughs> if you took an equipment in there and spent a hundred years, you're not going to find the phone. Same with the keys, really. You know, you mm-hmm. might get lucky with the metal detector. Things have dried up. We have been uh, in, in historically low waters around this area. In fact, a, a lake that I went canoeing in uh, just three years ago no longer exists. So, um, you know, uh, the water is low. Here's the thing, though. They did put up gates downstream. They were hoping to find them. I don't know if you've done uh, water rescue recovery, Kendra, but we had a boy fall into a river near here that was probably a bigger river than this one. And uh, it was heartbreaking because he drowned. Uh, but it took a very, very long time to find his body. It took a matter of days. And the only reason why I believe we found him is because this body of water, this river was very slow going past my county. And as it makes its way south, it goes through a number of bends. And there's a large amount of vegetation there that can mm-hmm. hang, hang things up. And some of it's just getting lucky. I mean, basically how it was found is we had someone from uh, Game Fish and Parks. They would take the boat out every day during daylight hours and go up and down the river to look for him. Um, you know, uh, that's... Sometimes that's how you find it. And sometimes you never find them at all. If they get hung up somewhere where no one's looking, um, even if even if they're searching nearby, they don't see them. Uh, they don't, the dogs don't hit on it for whatever reason. Eventually decomposition and even predation is going to take its toll on that. And he's going to just, he, he's going to go away to the point where there's nothing that you can reasonably find. Um, mm-hmm. And we all think of 2008 as being not that long ago, but it was actually quite a bit ago. And uh, although they searched in the spring and then again in the fall before the freeze, uh, which uh, the podcasters I listened to had no idea why they might do that, which uh, that, there's um, there's science about bodies floating in water of various temperatures. And uh, so you, you can look in bodies of water during various times of years and you can expect you can expect that bodies would be floating based on the temperature of the water, the density of the water, uh, the time of submersion. Uh, so there's reasons why you would call off a search for a body in a bo- in, in a body of water and why you might resume it later, particularly before a freeze when you're just not going to find anything in there. Yeah. But um, did you want to jump into the, the stupid podcast criticizing the police? I've kind of been yes. <laughs> holding that we, back. Yes, but, or should we, should we discuss where his car was actually eventually found? Because I don't think we actually said that part. Yeah. Let's talk about that real. Let's go over that real quick. Because okay. Yeah, let's do that. Okay. So, <laughs> and then I really want to get into this <laughs> presentation yes. you made because it's quite funny. Thank you. So here's the town of, of Marshall, and we apologize if you're not able to see this because you're just listening. I encourage you to go to Google Earth, and you can use the same tool I'm using. I'm nothing special. But just look for Marshall, Minnesota. <laughs> uh, southwest, you'll see about a five-mile diagonal oil road that goes to the city of Lynn. If you get to Russell, you have gone too far. They believe that he was initially in that area. And as you can see, there's a grid system of gravel roads that uh, kind of mark out where people's property are. You can see that these are green fields. They're growing soybeans. They're growing corn there and alfalfa. These are the major crops of the area. 
he was nowhere near this area. He was not near Lind. He was not near Marshall. So if we're saying he's within five miles of this general area, we're talking about 78 square miles. Well, guess what? Go northwest from Marshall towards Ghent on County Road 68. And then you're going to get to Minneota, which is a town that has a cell phone tower in it, towards Taunton. As you go west of Taunton, you're actually leaving uh, Lyon County and you're heading into Lincoln County. And there's a gravel road that forms the boundary between uh, the boundary between Lincoln and Lyon. It's a, an avenue which runs north and south. And uh, his car, his green Chevy Lumina, was actually found on one of these avenues southwest of or uh, south of Taunton, or generally in that location. His cell phone was pinged in the vicinity of Minneota. That's right. There's a town called Minneota, Minnesota. That's just how things are out here. <laughs> Most things are named after the same thing. Uh, Minnehaha, Minnesota, it's just, it's kind of our thing out there. So one of the initial reasons why they were criticizing him was because they didn't ping his phone right away. Uh, we'll talk about that when we get into police uh, criticisms. But look how far away he is, okay? So the amount of time that he spent missing... He drove from this area between Lynn and Marshall down here to the south. He is way far north and west out here on these gravel roads in which he was probably playing mm-hmm. Pac-Man, going north, going going west, trying to get up here to possibly to Canby because that's where he was going to school. Maybe he wasn't even going home. He seemed to be generally going in the vis- it, towards Canby. I don't know if he was doing that intentionally. Uh, mm-hmm. but uh, he could have taken, you know, Highway 19, County Road 19, and then north to US 75 to get to Canby, but he, like we said, he was avoiding law enforcement. He wound up in this huge triangular area. Look at this area uh, formed by Highway 68, Highway 19, and US 75. He's out here somewhere in this area, as it turns out. Look at how many square miles that yes. is. I know it's very, very hard. I could go through the equations with you and again in the geometry again. But in 2008, we don't have drones with FLIR, so we can't launch one of those to, see, to just fly around looking for hot spots in the field, which if we did that, we're going to see a lot of cows and horses. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, what's the scope of one of those things? It's not very big. You generally only deploy the drone once you have it narrowed down to like a square mile. You're not going to launch a drone even today alert, searching an area this big. This is where your air unit comes in. This is where you would need uh, search and rescue uh, from a state level, meaning uh, the uh, highway patrol or other assets probably out of Minneapolis. Those are assets are not nearby. It would take time to get there. He uh, The phone, final phone call with him was sometime after 2. They didn't report him missing until 6.30. So we had a, an air, about four hours there in which we didn't know where he was at all. Until we ping the phone, we find out he's he's actually on the border of another county. So... He's so far away that it's actually almost in another person's jurisdiction, in Lincoln County's jurisdiction. In fact, today, although the Bureau of Criminal Apprehension in Minnesota is the primary in the case, uh, if you have tips or information about this, they encourage you to call Lincoln County. I'm not sure why, because it looks like to me that Lyon County has more assets and is bigger and has more people. But for whatever reason, they would want you to call Lincoln County, which is in Ivanhoe, Minnesota. Um but he turns up way far out of the way. He's not anywhere near close. So no wonder the headlights didn't work. Uh, no, ma- no, no wonder that where the lights he saw uh, might have been for Taunton, which is not Lind. Uh, they actually went out to where the car was found. As you would, they walked around and they said, well, what lights would he have seen and which direction would he have gone? And they believe he was not seeing a city at all, but lights on top of a grain elevator. Uh, some of these grain mm. elevators are high enough to where they need a red beacon on top so the planes don't hit them over a certain height. Obviously, the FCC didn't 
says that you have to have a beacon on it. So uh, he might have been seeing uh, also, you know, there's just plants out here like ethanol plants. They're all over southwest Minnesota or uh, I don't know if they were out here as early as 2008. But this whole area is for also very big in wind energy. I don't know if specifically uh, Lyon or Lincoln County, but just to the south in Pipestone County and uh, Rock County, uh, there's all kinds of, of windmills out there. So he could have been seeing lights from that. They're actually very eerie when you're driving at night, and the only thing you could see is 10,000 <laughs> red strobes all blinking in unison. Thank you for making them in unison, so it's creepier. <laughs> uh, but that's j just something that will help you understand what it's like to be out here in the middle of nowhere. You have no landmarks, nothing to go by. The amount of time that he was uh, probably driving around was two hours. That's how it, how it would explain him getting all the way up here. So he waited a long time, mm -hmm. tried to help himself for a long time before he admitted he was screwed, called his parents, and his parents could do nothing for him. Yep. I know this isn't something that most people would think of. I'm just going to throw in my experience. If you are lost, if you do not know where you are, just call 911. You're not going to get in trouble for it. Maybe you'll be a little bit embarrassed, but I know there's apps on your phone now where you can just throw down a, a, a pin. You know, there's apps on Snapchat or functions on Snapchat where you can show people where you're at. It doesn't exist in 2008. Uh, something I'll also mention before we get to the police criticism, because I just had so many thoughts on this. So we ping we pinged uh, pinged his uh, his the last known location of his phone, which is not his current location. It's a historical record. Back in two thousand eight, we were still in three G. We would not get to four G until two thousand ten. We're in five G now. As we have leaped generations of wireless uh, information, uh, we have also been able to ping phones better. At this time, all we're going to get is just a general location. Hey, he's southwest of the tower in Minneota. You know, that's about all they could tell. They probably did still did a great amount of searching to locate his car. And that was based on historical information, not on where his phone presently was. I assume, and once his phone's turned off, we can't ping it. All we can do is go back and see what towers he pinged off of and what time that was. Generally, a, a distance and a bearing from the tower. But even then, that's not very good. Kendra, I told you yesterday that I was handling a case of a guy recently who called his wife and said, I shot myself in the stomach. And uh, we couldn't tell what state he was in. He ended up being in a separate state. But because he was pinging off of a tower in my state and the mm. historical, historical information said that he was probably in that area, we were searching, driving up and down all kinds of roads. We had all kinds of urgency. Some people claim that police officers <laughs> don't have urgency. We were driving around and we spent hours on this call not locating him. And he turned yeah. up to be in another state. So that's me talking about how pings work. Dispatchers do that. Oh, there's one last thing. This, you know, the sheriff getting, uh, pinging the phone. Even today, when you ping a phone, it is not a 911 dispatcher that does that. They call Verizon. They call AT&T, Sprint, your carrier. There's actually mm -hmm. some phone companies that can't do pings because your phone doesn't send out any roaming signals. There's like, uh, if you get one of these cheap phones, a booster phone, a throwaway phone, a burner phone. Some of these don't have that technology. They don't send out roaming signals, so they can't be tracked. Um, but we have to send in, and Kendra's so bored. She's drinking coffee and falling asleep. I'm sorry. I'm monopolizing the episode. It's just I have so many <laughs> no. thoughts on this as a rural 911 dispatcher who lives in the area of why this was, and why he could not have been found. Back in the day, especially when we're just at the dawn of the smartphone era, what were the legalities on this? I guarantee you that your phone provider, Verizon, AT&T, and Sprint, even today, they work very hard to protect your rights. Uh, we cannot ping your phone because there's a warrant out for your arrest. I've had police officers asking me to ping phones because someone was wanted on a really serious crime. They had a gun. 
they, you know, they they were wanted for robbery. Ping the phone. Sorry, but your AT and T Sprint, they will not let you do it. Someone has to be. In if only it was that easy. No, we would just ping people all the time, and life would be like TV shows and movies, and every crime would be solved in sixty minutes, and no one would have to go. This <laughs> and there wouldn't be true crime podcasts anymore. But we have to tell them we believe this person is in serious danger of life or limb that if we don't locate them as soon as possible, your subscriber could die. And they're like, okay, fill out this paperwork. They fax you a form. You have to send it back. I've even had them before. We're like, I'm going to put you on a brief hold. Sprint Verizon will call the sheriff's office I work for and they're say, hey, this asshole John's calling here trying to ping this phone. Does he actually work for you? And my coworker will have to say, yes, mm-hmm. unfortunately, I work with that asshole and he's here trying to ping the phone. <laughs> so they do reverse verification to make sure you're a sheriff's office, that you actually have probable cause, and that you fax them a legal demand letter saying, hey, we'll release this. And you know what? Especially in 2008 when we're just starting to do this stuff for the first time, if you don't have a damn good reason, first of all, a deputy is not going to be able to make that case and the wireless company is not going to release the information. In 2008, it would have been very common to say, hey, someone's lost and they said, oh, shit. And they'd be like, is that it? I mean, you you could sit there and make the case, well, you know, he might be wet and it might be cold outside and he might have been abducted by a van of banditos from El Salvador who are going to take him down into sexual slavery here in the middle of nowhere, Minnesota. But it's actually not that easy. And I want to commend the sheriff's office for actually getting those records as soon as, as they were, as soon as they did. And it was obviously instrumental. I don't think they would have found that vehicle for days if they had not pinged the phone. So they did the best he could. If only Brandon had still been in the car, we would have located him. But Brandon didn't make that decision. That's the point. Walk away. Go ahead. That was one of the points that you made that we both talked about yesterday, where it was like, if you're in a situation like that, in a survival situation, they tell you all the time when you're hiking and camping, if you get lost, you stay where you are. Do not deviate from your location when you ask for help, because the likelihood of you being found dramatically decreases if you leave the last known location of where you were because like you said the car is fixed the car is not going anywhere it's not sub-zero temps where he wouldn't where he would freeze to death in the car just stay there stay where you are um and they would have found him the next day because they found the car the next day which is pretty fucking fast if you ask me yeah um, and I don't appreciate people disparaging law people who have no idea what they're talking about, especially mm-hmm. disparaging law enforcement and questioning their tactics, questioning their, their morals and their own personal ethics of how much they care mm-hmm. to do their jobs and how much they care about people. It's, it's infuriating. Right. right. And, and it is, it, it is maddening. And I guess there's a whole bunch more that I didn't even really open up, but I actually called Lyon County this morning and I annoyed, I want to apologize to that dispatcher right away because she's very annoyed to talk to me as I would be to her. But I ask you, so I asked her this. I said, so on the case of an overdue motorist, which is what this case is, and a welfare check, uh, wouldn't it be the most common thing to do would be to issue a bolo, a be on the lookout? Mm-hmm. And she said, yes, we call it a cops alert here, which is what they call it in Minnesota. It's basically an informational bulletin that goes out to surrounding agencies. Uh, people were mad that they didn't get them. Hit, this kid entered as a missing person. I'm going to tell you right now that entering someone as a missing person doesn't perform any police function whatsoever. It doesn't start a search. doesn't make it okay to look. Um, if we believe someone's overdue, we need to attempt to locate them. The number one thing that we would do is start looking. How do you do that? Well, in a county like this, where you probably only have a few people on patrol, 
at night you back in 2008 i'm guessing that they had between two to three deputies based on their population based on how things run here in the morning they're going to have a few more like i said for, for civil purposes and other things that are going on during the day when the sheriff's office is open but the number one thing you could do is put out a bolo one of these cops alerts to say to neighboring counties, hey, if you see this car, like we're interested in this person, like pull him over, do a welfare check and call us, you know, so mm-hmm. that we know where he is and what's going on with him. Uh, that doesn't, you don't need to meet any kind of standard for that. Someone can say like, my son hasn't come home and he was supposed to be, we'll do that. I don't, that's not extra work for me. I don't have to meet a legal standard. I don't have to convince a judge. That's normal police functioning. If you're going to say someone is is actually missing, you're entering, they're entering them into an FBI database of missing missing persons, which is not complicated or a big deal and also does not need a judge to sign off on it. But ultimately, it doesn't cause anything to happen. Quick story mm-hmm. about why entering someone as missing isn't proof that they're doing something. Okay, So we have a facility here where people go for drug rehab. And this uh, 17-year-old girl busts out the window and she's she wants her drugs and she doesn't care what her parents say. And she's going to run for it and she's going to go do her drugs. <laughs> I send the cop over there, the town cop. I said, go look for this girl. She just busts out the window and she's out there on the loose. She doesn't have, I don't even think she has shoes on or whatever. Cop gets there, sees the window busted out. Sure enough, she's not there. The camera shows, shows she left and was last seen going in this direction. He gets on the radio and says, put her in NCIC is missing. I said, do you realize she's probably still within the sound of your voice and NCIC only alerts other agencies if they find her. So if she if she somehow walks all the way 20 miles to the next jurisdiction in the last five minutes since I took this call and sent you there and a police officer sees her and pulls her over and runs her information, that's the only way that's going to be helpful. So putting them into NCIC as a missing person is not something that facilitates functions or really advances the search. All it does is if some other agency happens to locate this person based on their own probable cause for having contact or suspicion, then they can find out that, hey, this person's missing from Lyon County. So I got really mad when they were like, they didn't even enter them as missing, which we'll discuss in a second. I'm almost like getting so angry that I'm going after it early, Kendra, I'm kind of ruining it. You're not ruining it. I do want to say that um, this is uh, obviously this is back in 2008, this case. But um, so that was nearly 20 years ago. Uh, But the entering, especially a juvenile, um, which isn't Brandon, but in the case that you're talking about, uh, I think that also comes back to uh, policy for the officer, because I know where I was working. That was one of the first things you had to do with a juvenile because... Um, it, I mean, it's different if like you're hot on the trail, you're not going to stop searching for this person to put them into a database. You're going to do, you're going to do everything. You're going to exhaust every Avenue first, especially if they're right. Like, you know, they're probably like you said, within the sound of your voice. Um, but it's one of the very first things you do as soon as you can. That's true. It's a liability thing. Um, there's special in Brandon's case, there's special rules that govern children. You're right. Yeah. That's different, but Brandon's not a child. No. Um, He's someone's baby, but he's not a child. So that doesn't really apply to him. But I just wanted to make that comment because that's something that I would have had to do. Yeah. And and you're right. I mean, the kid, unfortunately, I mean, we found the kid right away. So the NCIC Mm -hmm. thing, it definitely needed to be done in 20, within 24 hours. And it was actually, if we couldn't, if we had not found her, it would have happened within one hour because it doesn't take that long to do. Uh, But the reason why we're mentioning all these things about Brandon drinking, 
Brandon driving. Brandon going off the roads to try to avoid accountability, avoid an accident, maybe if you want to say nice things about him. Um, getting lost, spending a great deal of time, in my, in my opinion, trying to figure it out. Finally getting stuck, uh, not calling law enforcement for help because he's afraid of getting in trouble. Uh, calling his parents, telling his parents he was somewhere else. Uh, not telling him, hey, you know, I've been driving around for this long time. I've been driving from here to there. I've been drinking. I'm confused. You know, he doesn't want to get in trouble with his parents. Um, leaving the car, going through the field. The reason why I say this is not to blame Brandon. I wish Brandon was found. I wish he was safe and at home and doing whatever it is he wants to do. But on these podcasts, there's a concerted effort to blame police for not responding appropriately because police are there to protect and serve. I actually heard that from multiple podcasters um it is also not your job as a citizen to put yourself in danger he he created this exigent circumstance that he continually made worse and worse and worse and worse through his decisions and through his parents decisions frankly they also waited four hours to report it which they shouldn't have done if they i mean if, if if it was really as bad as they say where he says oh shit and now he's not answering that's a 911 call, in my opinion. I mean, I know that yep. I'm someone that knows what 911's for. I'd, I would dial it more readily in that situation than the common person. But um, you want to talk about wasted time. Like if he was suffering from hypothermia in the near hours after that, uh, the initial wasted time is on his parents. I don't say that to blame them, mm-hmm. but it's like uh, we'll get into it. But it's like they're, they're saying that a certain amount of time was wasted. Well, it's not just or only the police that you have to blame for this you can blame brandon you can blame his parents as people who knew about it you can blame his friends for not answering the phone there's plenty of blame to go around and if you're going to blame one blame all i say because that's fair yep i agree i agree with you 100 <laughs> percent. what else did i miss before we do our uh, do this special segment that we're well, watching on this episode i think that a lot of the points we're hitting are things that are in this presentation I so know. why don't we play it i know i guess and so then we'll mad. <laughs> no, it's okay, John. You can be mad. I'll, I'll play. You're about to get then, more mad. I know. I'll play, and then I won't have to stop it as frequently because we we have addressed many of these things. So this comes from an unnamed uh, true crime podcast that I listen to. <laughs> uh, I won't name it, but uh, we call this uh, new segment "Other Podcast Stupidest Takes." So here are these two podcasts. So 6.30 a.m., Annette and Brian called the police and reported Brandon missing at the Lyon County Sheriff's Department. And they actually went down there. And the police uh, weren't concerned. Great. They just weren't concerned he about this. He ran away, right? Yeah, they basically told them to chill out. And Brandon was 19 years old and an adult. And one even said he had the, quote, right to go missing. He's 19 years old. He can do what he wants. You're like, yeah, but the last thing he said to me was, oh, shit. So I'm a little bit concerned well, that's and where, ran his car off the road. Like, Well, they basically were like, well, don't all 19-year-olds disappear after calling their parents for help? Like, what? I'm like, he like, called for help. Sense. So time was wasted. Time was lost here. Great. Thanks a um, lot. They ignored assholes. these frantic parents and completely didn't listen to the fact that this kid didn't just disappear. He was on the phone with his parents after calling his parents for help. Right. So one of their claims is that they took this report and then they just sat there and like, we're not doing anything. Um, first of all, I know you discussed this before. Brandon's your baby, but he's not a baby. And Brandon does have the right to, to go off the grid. He can do that. And we, you know, I, it's reasonable for you to report it. You're not in trouble for reporting it. We're not making, we're not going to get you in trouble for making a false <laughs> report, 
right? It's like, we understand why you're coming to us and saying this. You've got to understand that like all reports sound this way and 99% of them turn out to be something other than what happened in this case. So police officers cannot police from the standpoint of what's the least likely thing that can happen because that's not a practical way to police. It's also, you're going to waste a lot of time, effort, and energy, and you're not going to police anything else. Like if, if you, every time you get one of these, you immediately assume the worst or weirdest thing. Uh, you're never going to have an SRO go to school and read books to children. You're never going to have... Uh, that stop sign being enforced, you're never going to have anyone to respond to crashes. Uh, police have to play a probability game just like anyone else would. Like in your job, uh, when you're dealing with a situation, and I don't care what your job is, uh, if you have to make a decision, you're going to be taking probability into account as you do it. Uh, the fact is that Brandon went to multiple parties. He drank. He had something to hide. And it's he has he has something to hide from his parents, in fact. Uh, and that's something that they address. And I understand I've had many moms call me, as I said earlier in this podcast, they call me, they're concerned about their baby. I get it. And I actually do care. And I'll investigate it to the extent that the law allows me. But actually, we have to protect people's rights, too. And we cannot infringe on Brandon's rights on your word alone, because then there really aren't rights anymore. Once someone says something and your rights get disposed of, it turns out we're not protecting your rights and your rights don't exist. Kendra? And what um, the points that they're making, uh, that they're trying to pin on law enforcement for not caring, whereas he says, she says, I don't care that he's an adult. Like, that's my baby. goes back to what you're saying. Like, I don't care that he's a fully formed, uh, functioning citizen of America who has rights now. This is what I want yeah. because I'm his mother infringe or I'm his, his father. Infringe his rights, basically. Like something that is a common refrain yes. on these podcasts is like they want us to re- infringe on someone's rights when retrospect or hindsight or the totality of the case shows that might have been a shorter way to arrive at a conclusion that solves the case. However, when you do not know the outcome of the case and all you have is the information right in front of you saying he called four hours ago, said, oh, shit, and, you know, we, we can't locate him. We don't know that a crime has occurred. We don't know that we have reasonable suspicion or probable cause to start getting warrants to search for things. We don't know if the right thing to do is to uh, call a helicopter out of Minneapolis, start using uh, volunteer firefighters, by the way, are going to be the search and rescue apparatus for this area. Should we start paging out people who are volunteers to start looking? And if so, where? Because we believe that he's between Lynn and Marshall, but he turned out not to be in that area anyway. If we had activated uh, firefighters from Marshall and from Lynn, uh, they wouldn't have found anything. I also don't appreciate how she's talking about um, the, oh shit, like that's that's cause for um, immediate, like to believe that he's in immediate danger because as a law enforcement officer, and again, um, why in the hell, if you're actually, I'm not attacking his parents because uh, they probably were like, oh, what do we do? What do we do? I don't know what's best. Like, uh, should we go? Maybe they didn't want to waste time. I don't know. But they waited. If they were truly that concerned for their baby's well-being, um, I would imagine they would be calling 911 right away, telling them the situation. Someone would have instructed them to go home and they would have started investigating to the best of their ability. But when you go after the fact, hours later, the next day, and you say, um, my adult son got lost last night, but he knows the area and he wasn't intoxicated. He's just walking to the nearest town. Um, while I was on the phone with him, he said, oh shit. And I couldn't get in touch with him anymore. What, what's the, 
what is that? It, if you tell me this person's not intoxicated and I wasn't there for the conversation, so and none of us were, the law enforcement officer might not have even been an asshole as this podcaster likes to throw around. Maybe he was just trying to simply explain, listen, there's not much I can do because he's an adult. There's no evidence of danger. You're telling me he's not intoxicated. You're telling me he knows where he's going. He is an adult. Maybe his friends picked him up and he lost his phone. Like, give it a little bit. Yeah. And the parents took it as, well, you don't care. Fuck you. I'm leaving. Because right. that's what happens. And But it's the law enforcement officer's fault. That's happened to me so many times where I'm trying to explain to someone to actually give them some insight and perspective and tell them, I do care about your situation, but I can't just do whatever. Right. I can't just infringe on someone's rights. I can't just call in the posse and get every resource that I possibly can unless you tick these boxes and you haven't done that. No, if, if so, anything, them yeah. protecting his status as intoxicated because they didn't want him to get in trouble or suspicious or, you know, I don't know if they even knew at the time whether or not he'd been drinking, but concealing that is, you know, if he's out there and he's impaired, that's one more reason why we would think he was in danger and would actually add to our ability mm -hmm. to go out there and do something. But you keep saying he's fine. That it's, you know, it's not that urgent because you waited until daylight, I presume, to report this. If you dialed 911 right away and said, my son's missing, he's, you know, he might be intoxicated. He was going to a party tonight. We can't find him. We've been looking for him for 40 minutes. He said, oh, shit. And the phone turned off. You dial 911, like the response is going to be different because you're proceeding with some urgency. Like we're going to look to you for yes. what, what the urgency is. And I'll tell you this. So like I called the sheriff's office. I know how many deputies are on duty right now. It's really not that many. If we extrapolate back, you know, 20 years and, you know, uh, funds being different and the size of the county being different, mm -hmm. they probably don't have that many deputies on duty at night searching that huge area, which we now realize is not 78 square miles, but it's hundreds of square miles because of where he actually was located. Yes. Yes. It's not reasonable to... You know, another podcast was like, just send out some cruisers. You know, they're on patrol anyway. Yes, the patrol probably had one of these bolos. Be on the lookout. If you see this vehicle, we need to stop it and investigate. What's far more likely to happen mm -hmm. in this area, and I can tell you that because this happens to me every morning that I work, that people are going to and from work or to school and they'll come across a vehicle which to them is suspicious. And the, the public is much more likely to see a green Chevy Lumina high centered on the side of a road with doors open and call it in and report to us. So in some sense, you can issue a bolo. You could put deputies out there. You could even put a chopper in the air. But the person who's most likely to find that vehicle, if it can be found simply by looking, is a member of the public. And so in some ways, everybody's on the lookout for it because the situation you described yeah. is going to be suspicious even to a common person. And I take calls mm -hmm. for far less suspicious things that end up being far more significant. You know, uh, a, per, a, com a common person will see a vehicle just parked somewhere where they've never seen it before. And it turns out that's a stolen vehicle out of Omaha. So, like, we have mm -hmm. so many cases that will start that way out of someone just seeing something out of out of the ordinary. And so I hate to say this because it goes against right. everything I believe in. But if you say, see something, say something, right? We can actually solve crimes <laughs> that way. So I'm sure that the opinions in the sheriff's office as people are waking up because it's a Wednesday morning now and coming and going. If this vehicle is anywhere near us and we don't know that it is, um, there, someone's going to call dispatch and say, hey, there's a green Chevy Lumina. with It's not occupied and it's hung up and the doors are open. That's clearly suspicious. Now we have a place to start. And uh, another point is that they... They probably told them, hey, um, he told us he was between Lind and Marshall. We went all over there and he's not there. So you're telling me your son knows where he's at. He was whatever. 
and all this information and you don't know where he's actually at. What am I, how am I supposed to begin to look for someone like that mm -hmm. if I don't even know where, and like you were saying, you can't just ping a phone. Yeah. You I'll, can't just do that so that you can find out where someone is. You have to have reasons why. Yeah. And this, uh, yeah, if they're downplaying it, if they're not responding urgently, those things work against them. But honestly, when they reported mm -hmm. it to uh, the sheriff's office, the only thing that they had to go on was where he wasn't. He said he was here, but he wasn't. Right. So mm -hmm. where's the next place you? And they were in different counties. Murders? Yeah, he was. He's on the. He's literally on the line uh, to be in in Lincoln County. So he's literally. He's so far right. away from where he's supposed to be. He's on the line for a whole other jurisdiction, which is why they get roped into yep. it. I actually have more on this video to play if you're ready to get even more mad. Please. Let's get more mad. Go ahead. Okay. Like he wanted to be found. Yeah, like he. this was not like he left one day and like we and can't find him. And he just never him. came back or he just like, you know, parked his car and left and that was it. It's like he literally initiated the phone call to get help from his parents. I also can't imagine the feeling of just being so desperate for help from the people that are literally put in place to yeah. help you and have them tell you like, oh, I don't know what to tell you. Well, and it's I can't like, imagine how frustrating they're that sitting there saying, well, he's an adult. He can do whatever he wants. And it's like, yeah, I don't give a shit what you're saying. This 19 year old <clears throat> is still my child. Right. And it's my child who he literally said, oh, shit. And then didn't answer the phone again. But right. they still didn't care. It took hours for them to convince them. I don't know how they did to finally get them to put him as a missing person and wow. actually put some search into it. Wow, that's sad that they had to, like, yeah. you should not have to convince the police to do their job. No, and of course time was wasted uh, here again. Precious time, like the beginning of an investigation yeah. is the most important. Have you seen 48 hours? And it's like- an I have to stop them there because the whole thing that, that uh, they should be watching A&E <sighs> to learn how to police, like I, 48 hours, first 48, I like those shows. They're actually pretty good, but they're still made to be more interesting. They're still edited and uh, trimmed and made. And they're probably, they're not 48 hours, by the way. No, no. And do you know, I'm sorry. Watch that show and see how often it is that they find a missing person or solve a murder and it's fewer than 48 hours or it's six months later or nine months later. Yes. You could say what you want to about statistics saying, you know, if someone's not found or their case isn't solved in the first 48, the chances of them ever resolving it drops by, by 50%. Do you realize that that's a, mm -hmm. uh, a dramatic device and the little clock ticking at the bottom is a way that they put drama into what is otherwise a very uh, drab and by the numbers investigation? <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah, look at his cell phone records. Well, who does he know? Uh, he knows some street guy named Fatty T. Well, we should probably find Fatty T. <laughs> You know, and it's not, and it's, and it, it, without the clock, to be honest with you, it's, it is more dry. Like they do like the sudden zoom ins on the detective's face yes. before the commercial, but without all the flair and without the ticking clock, those investigations are very boring. So that statistic exists. There's probably other statistics, but the mere fact that you sh should say, well, don't you watch a TV show? That's how you should learn how to police. That's how you learned how to police, and, and that's why you're not a police officer. It's why you're not even a 911 dispatcher. You have not fucking found anyone before, whereas I have, and Kendra has, and we've both done deal, dealt with intoxicated people and missing persons report, and your, your ignorance is completely obvious. And what makes me mad about it, Kendra, as we were talking about this yesterday, is it'd be one thing if you just do this for entertainment purposes. This show's for entertainment purposes, okay? Uh, we, we could have gotten facts wrong in this case. In fact, if you did, uh, just reach out to me. You know how to do that, and I'll say on the show that I got it wrong because I got no skin in this game. I'm wrong all the time. But they purport to have the same integrity and importance as journalism. Like in another case they covered, they're saying, hey, we need to be mm -hmm. taking 
societal justice action on this. We need to be raising attention for this cause, going, you know, talking about this case, getting negative attention on the police. They said that Gabby Petito was only solved because it was because it became such a huge interest to the true crime community because the armchair detectives just wouldn't let the police oh, give up. Fuck off. Yes, exactly. So they have fuck this mentality off. that they're the real police because they've watched A&E, because they listen to true crime podcasts, that they know how to do it. They know the best way to do it. And every single time that a, that a case isn't solved in 60 minutes or 90 minutes on a podcast, it's because the police are corrupt, the police are inept, the police are lazy, the police have to be begged to do their job. When the truth is, is that we have limited resources. We have two deputies working in a, in a county that has 20,000 people in it at night. We have volunteer firefighters that's your only search and rescue apparatus. We don't have FLIR. We don't have drones because it's 2008. We don't have the ability to pinpoint your phone because it's 2008. We don't have probable cause to get a warrant for that. All these little things that you have seen on other shows that you think make you a skilled investigator or a skilled person of the law, someone who knows anything, you're getting that vicariously from people who know just as little as you do. So you know a lot about how and to find a missing person. It just so happens that everything that you know is wrong. And yes, okay, we did talk about this responsible journalism versus entertainment type thing. And if you want to be an entertainment channel, then don't present yourself as a journalist. Because if you do that, now you are responsible for the ignorance of your audience or the, inf or the education of your audience. And when you uh, activate an army, essentially, because some of these podcasters call their fans, they have like a name for their fan base, and it's usually like an army or a whatever. Or a wolf pack. It's, <laughs> it's like you're, this particular podcast has uh, quite a large following, and it consists of mostly non-law enforcement. I would take a bet on that. These people believe everything that comes out of these girls' mouths because they're sheep and they don't do their own fact checking and investigating and not that they not that these two podcasters are intentionally trying to mislead people although they might be but i've they might i have never it's generally more seen. more salacious the more negative you can put on the cops or the the, yes, the better the victim is it's trending i have never seen i have yet to see a podcast reach out to an actual investigator and try for the purposes of trying to get a correct perspective on how these cases are handled or at least all they balance. do is say try to yeah if you're going to be a journalist and i just want to make a point real quick before we move on because i was thinking about this um and you know i have add so if i don't say it i'll forget but just because a cop is being an asshole to you does not mean they're not doing their job yes. and i can guarantee you they're I can guarantee you, you not to be good. Exactly. Go ahead. I can guarantee you that these hours of convincing were just hours of actual fucking police work and they were pissy because they got the answer they didn't want to hear. So you can fuck right off and shut the fuck up about that stupid bullshit. I hate yeah. that. Yeah. Do you really think that if they blew them off, they would be standing there for hours listening to these parents convince them? That's called no, taking a they report. They were doing their jobs. And, and when they say they were doing their jobs. And when they say when the officers say, "Well, could it be this?" They're looking for 
a situation. So could it be this? And that could could he be intoxicated? No, Brandon doesn't drink. Brandon doesn't. You know, he had that issue a year ago, but he doesn't have that problem anymore. They're not. They're not trying to say there's a reason why we shouldn't go looking for him. They're trying to figure out what's the totality of the circumstances. Yes. Are there other exigencies because... that we can use to go look for this guy? Police generally mm-hmm. don't hate doing their job. Otherwise, they would go be a firefighter. But they don't mind doing yes. the job. Uh, when you get a or case like that, would, it's not it does, it's not like finding poop in your bed. It's just like, well, this is what happened today. Something's they handle missing persons case and overdue motorist cases and welfare checks cases all the time. This didn't come to them and say, well, this is too much of a goddamn hassle. This is Tuesday for yep. them. This is Wednesday for them. This is every day for them. I get to the family of the Swansons that this was their their most heartbreaking and tragic moment that changed the course of their lives forever. It was Wednesday for the sheriff's office because we handle cases like that every single day, and when. When I take a phone call for a missing person, I don't sit there and groan, even though it means more work for me than a typical phone call. That's just what my job is. And I don't look for reasons to get out of it. I try to ask questions about what's happening and say, well, couldn't it just be this? Because if I if it is a simpler explanation, that's more likely to be the truth. And I can pursue that that explanation until I exclude it. Once I exclude it and say, well, there's no way this is it, I'm definitely going to keep investigating. But that's a process of of divination, right? Could it be this? Is it left? Is it right? Is it A or is it B? That's not questioning whether or not we should be doing this and us sitting there for hours, you trying to convince us that something is wrong. We're trying to figure out the totality of everything that's wrong. Yes. And you've experienced this, I'm sure, as a dispatcher. Um, When you're, when you're, doing an investigation and asking preliminary questions to get a better idea of what's going on. Sometimes the person you're asking these questions to takes that as you like, can you just fucking send somebody? Why are you asking me all these dumb questions? All Why are you asking me this? Why are, my baby is missing. Get someone here now. And yep. if you don't immediately do what they want you to do, they either hang up or they stop ask, answering your questions or they storm out of the office, try to report their baby missing. Um, that is probably it's probably a combination of like this deputy who who by the way just got to work i'm sure it's 6 30 in the morning um trying to ask preliminary questions they're getting they're antsy of course because they're worried and they might be starting to get an attitude and the deputy's like oh my fucking god can you just just because he's missing doesn't like he's an adult he could go missing i've had conversations like that with people i'm guilty of being um maybe not as professional as i could have been because someone's giving me an attitude at shift change and i'm like (laughs) Are you good? If you want me to help, you have to answer my questions. I can't just go do these things. Yes, it is. Um, it, that doesn't mean I'm blowing them off. It's a it's a process of you know? questioning, and people actually get insulted when you suggest that it's something mm-hmm. that's obvious. Like, do you have any idea? And I know that you do, Kendra. So I say this to the audience: You know how many times I take co- right. phone calls for missing children, and I ask, "Has a complete search of the house been made?" Yes, I searched everywhere. The kid turns up under a blanket. Kid turns up under a bed. I had a lady call once, and she said, uh, "My three year old's missing," and the the cistern is open in backyard. Cistern is a well, essentially. It's a pit with water in it. She goes, I think mm-hmm. my baby's in the well. I hit the button. I get everybody going. Fire rescue, technical rescue from faraway agencies. Deputies are going hot. While this is going on, well, I'm sending every single technical resource I can think of to go get a three-year-old out of a well because I believe the mom. At that exact moment, a man had a witness cardiac arrest in another town, and I didn't have units to send him because I was sending it to this bullshit call about a kid in the well. The kid was under the bed. So every time I have to make a decision about doing everything I can do to preserve the life of a child or a 19-year-old or someone who's missing, and they're completely innocent, I'm also still making a choice through, through the lens of circumstance that I'm not helping someone else. That guy died. 
That woman watched her husband die right in front of her. I'm not saying we could have saved him, but I know we sure as hell could have done more for him if those units had been in the area. I might have had a deputy nearby with an AED that might have made all the difference. Might have. I don't know. But they were out trying to drive 90 miles an hour to get to a well because they thought a three-year-old was in it. So every time mm-hmm. someone reports something like that and your heartstrings get pulled, you got to remember as a law enforcement agency and as someone of limited resources, there's always something else. Of course, if someone calls me tonight and they say my baby's in a cistern, I'm going to remember this, but I'm going to do the exact same thing because that's what you do. Yeah. You don't sit there and explain yep. that it's a big damn hassle to get technical rescue out of some other jurisdiction that you can't even dispatch from. You just start working. And that's how it is in these cases. And they made such mm-hmm. a stink about it that the state legislature had to prove some, pass some law about how you should begin investigating promptly or whatever, which is a feel-good law, a law that exists for no reason. Mm-hmm. It doesn't change anything durably about the way law enforcement operates. But it sure did make the Governor Tim Pawlenty of Minnesota look like he cares about the children and about the lost and people like Brandon because now we have Brandon's law. And I don't mean any of that against Brandon. Like I said, I wish he was safe and sound and found. Of course not. But he he made mistakes. He caused the problem. And you cannot say law enforcement failed to save him from his own series of ridiculously poor decisions. And and it's on law enforcement that Brandon's not alive today. Brandon got himself in trouble. And unfortunately, we weren't able to get him out of it. And and let me just make this mention if uh if the same situation happened but he was out like hiking and law enforcement was never even involved in this at all and he was found dead making the same mistakes doing the same things nobody would be in an uproar or saying that he is an innocent victim and law enforcement failed they would say this guy made a lot of mistakes and unfortunately he passed away from them and that's just the way the cookie crumbles but because we're now now he's a missing person um that logic goes out the window and everything becomes law enforcement's fault and i don't get that because law enforcement is there to prevent some things but for the most part it's a reactive first responder you're responding to something and that something is usually caused by poor decision making mm-hmm. and and sometimes uh, it's not the cop's fault sometimes when we're being proactive they're reacting back. Case in point, we're out, we're out there on mm-hmm. patrol. We're looking for people who are driving impaired because they can wind up in situations like this. And that's that may have been what drove Brandon further off the beaten path and farther out of the way of help of a police officer mm-hmm. happening to drive by and noticing that he was in danger. Or just yeah. a common citizen. The fact that he went far out of the way down this gravel road that separates two counties, which I'm going to tell you right now because it's a gravel road that separates two counties, it's at the very end of your limit. Deputies will not typically drive far away from the office to go right along the border looking for crimes or missing persons or vehicles or anything. It's just a matter, a function of geography that they're going to be in the area where the people are. They're going to be where their station is. They're going to be where stuff has happened. They're going to be where their calls are. They're not going to be out on the perimeter. I don't say this to tell you that you can get away with stuff on county lines, but it just happens to be the case. That they're not often they're not often patrolled, particularly when they're gravel and particularly when they're in Minnesota. If you're in South yes. Florida and you think that you're going to get away with something by driving down a road because it's a county line, I don't think you're going to be in luck. But when you're in the rural nowhere, it happens to work out that way. So <laughs> when we're being proactive, situations like this react and they, they make it worse for themselves. So all I can say is if you want to blame one, blame the person who caused it too. And that's sad because he's mm-hmm. 19 year old. He had his whole life ahead of him. We, we feel sad for, for victims of circumstance or of crime in case it was a crime that occurred. I don't see anything that points to a crime having occurred. No, um, no. 
but uh, blame one, blame all. And his his mm-hmm. he made stupid decisions that admittedly a 19-year-old would make. I've done dumb things before, folks. I probably will yes. do them again. I'm dumb, and when, when I do dumb things, it's not someone else's fault that I do these things. And and his parents made bad decisions, too. Like, if you live in Minnesota, you know this. Every single winter, you can get stuck in the snow. In fact, vehicles get stuck in the snow every single year there. It's not every other year or once a decade. It's every year. And the chances of you surviving in the cold outside of that vehicle drop by half. So you say that an investigation gets compromised after 48 hours. You leave a vehicle, your chances of surviving the elements drop in half. So there's another statistic yes. for you. So we didn't Mm -hmm. react fast enough, but Brandon also put himself in a situation in which he was less likely to be found and less likely to survive. So both of those things happen. Should I finish it out? Please, let's finish it all. Can we finish it all the way out and then we'll talk? Annette and Brian, they did everything they were supposed to do. Exactly. They they were failed. I can't imagine how helpless they felt. No. No, the search in Lind turned up nothing. They found Mm -hmm. him nowhere around Lind. Or the Uh, car. The parents searched again. The friends searched with them. The sheriff did finally get his ass in gear and they got the cell phone records. Make sure that this is what you just said, investigated properly. And maybe don't wait to do this shit. Maybe do it when you're supposed to do it. And they were like, well, he's 19. He probably just left. And they didn't do their job right away. Like, and they what missed is wrong with you? valuable time. It's so fun. I don't understand the, like, the lack of urgency in some of these police departments. It's like really wild when your job is all about responding to urgency. Well, I was just going to say, like, that's exactly what I was going to say. That's your whole job that's is literally being urgent. Job. That's it. Like in your resume, you should write that you have a sense of urgency. You are supposed to protect and you are supposed to serve. When you do neither of those things, what exactly are you being paid for? Right. That's uh, kind of the end of it is what are you being paid for? Where's your sense sense of urgency? As I said, this was other podcasts, stupidest takes. Uh, We'll probably, unless we get dinged on it from the copyright from YouTube, uh, we'll probably continue to do this, but again, the only thing that they knew was where Brandon wasn't. So knowing where he wasn't, that's where you know not to start. Where do you start after that? As I said, uh, I contacted Lyon County. I actually did some due diligence, and I at least called them and talked to them. And I said, is it uncommon for an over overdue uh, motorist for a welfare check? You issue a bolo. They said it's called a cops alert. I've seen those come across my teletype. That's telling agencies in the area, be on the lookout for this. It's very common to see this, be on the lookout for this vehicle with this person. We consider them endangered at this time. Very normal. That's the first step in how you find a missing person is you get the word out. And I have every reason to believe that as soon as they took the report, they said, be on the lookout for this because they don't want a law enforcement officer driving past this obvious you know, situation with the Chevy Lumina high center with the doors open. Uh, and they're also going to take reports from the public. The public you know, Kendra, in any investigation, whether it's looking for a missing green Chevy Lumina and a 19-year-old inside it or a murder, your information comes from the public. You question people who know things, question people who are in the area, question people who have seen things. So your broadest arm and your biggest tool for investigating anything is always going to be the people who live there, the people who are talking to you, people you can reach out and question. In this case, it's going to be motorists on their way down these roads, or it's going to be farmers saying, hey, I found a frozen kid in my field. That's how that's going to happen. They can't, there's nothing else that they can do to attempt to locate him. The comedy of uh, tragedies, or excuse me, the series of tragedies is what caused that though. Go ahead. Yes. And what the statement that she made about do what you're supposed to do, what the fuck are you supposed to do then? Make a suggestion. Don't just sit there and spout, get into your job and you don't have urgency and you're there to protect and serve. Well, 
if you're so fucking smart and you know everything, why don't you make a suggestion? What, where would you go? What would you do? Where, where would you look in this gigantic rural area for a, an adult who was totally lucid and knows exactly where they're at? What the fuck are you, what are they doing? And by the way, a couple of hours in law enforcement time is when you're getting things like a phone record, especially like, you know, remember we're in 2008, um, that's probably about the amount of time that you're going to get something like that, especially since he is not an endangered juvenile. Um, that's a that's a good amount of time. Like I said earlier, just because an officer is being an asshole to you doesn't mean they're not doing their job. It doesn't mean they're not investigating and putting things into motion. And the sheriff getting his ass in gear, um, that's that's a good amount of time. That's actually a pretty, in my opinion, that's a quick amount of time. And they found him within a day. Well, they found the car within a day, right. way away from where he was. Yeah. Reportedly not. It's I. There was I no don't, chance that putting that if you had gotten the entire department, if you had woken everybody up, put them all in a in a patrol car, and gone out and searched and activated every fire department, it's not reasonable to believe that they would have ever found him because to this. To the point, you know, we still haven't found him to this day. We haven't found any any remains. We haven't found any of his items. We found no indications of anything. Um, and there's no reason to believe that acting any quicker would have done that. In fact, we might have wasted valuable time, valuable mm -hmm. resources. Yes. A fire department might not have been a place to respond to a structure fire or a vehicle fire or something. And I'm not saying, like I said earlier, I'm not saying you withhold resources on something like this or like you're like, well, what, what's the, the, the next thing that might happen? But... You can only say that the police department really dropped the ball on this as if if we had done something different, the outcome would have been different. And I don't think that it would have been. No, because if he was, let's say um, the, the conversation would be very different. In fact, they probably wouldn't even be talking about it in general. If his car was, in fact, between Lind and Marshall, like he said it was. Do you really think they wouldn't go at least check it out? Like they had no starting point. And like you said, we're going to waste valuable resources and and time because you're you're asking a couple of deputies to search an entire county essentially well a large portion of a county that's going to take more than a couple of hours to find this car if you just sit back and do things procedurally the way that they're meant to be which is the way that they fucking did it then you're going to find what you're going to find and you can only go off of the information you have in the moment you cannot you don't have the luxury of sitting and Monday morning quarterbacking after you have all of the information and the outcome years later to look back on and pour over and what could we have done here and there. And um, one of the things that irritates me about this podcast in particular, not True Crime Tuesday, the one that we're, <laughs> the one that we're uh, critiquing, is that they're very contradictory in what they want from law enforcement. I've been listening to them for a while I do genuinely enjoy some of the banter and the cases they cover, but I have noticed a trend that um, no matter what law enforcement is wrong, no matter what, because right. in this case, they complain that law enforcement didn't infringe on an adult's rights, that they didn't act fast enough. Um, but let's say they did. Let's say they did infringe on someone's rights. Let's say they did force those farmers and go illegally search a property just to find a body, or um, they 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 took they went too fast and they didn't they overlooked something. Okay, now all of a sudden they're incompetent. 
and they need to go back to training and law enforcement sucks. They just want to bitch about law enforcement Mm -hmm. all the fucking time. And this is a little bit of a personal side note, so I apologize, but I don't, I have a really hard time taking, accepting the opinions of people who are ignorant to what their opinion is about. And clearly they just are anti-law enforcement. It's very obvious Um, to me. It's very obvious. And they have a large platform and they are, um, it's like trendy to hate cops now. And I think a lot of people monopolize on that. And it just pisses me off because they don't even understand the basics of how a missing person's not an endangered juvenile, a missing adult who's completely lucid and knows where they're at and knows what they're doing and they're not, they're completely with it. They have no idea what goes into the process, the investigation, the legalities, the chain of command, like the resources that are available, the law. Cops can't just, they have policies and laws they have to act within and they cannot deviate. Policies you can kind of work around and buck them every once in a while, but you cannot deviate from the law. And the law says you will not infringe on someone's privacy. Like you can't do that unless you have exigent circumstances. And there were none in this case saying, Oh shit is not an exigent circumstance. Yeah, it isn't. No. So it just pisses me off. And put yourself, put yourself in the, the more common situation. Like I said, at the beginning of the podcast, you just don't want to talk to somebody. Should the police be uh, using that to locate you where you, where you are finding you and telling you to call someone that you're ignoring. That's that if, mm-hmm. if, if that's what you wanted us to do, that's what would be happening all the time. And obviously you don't mm-hmm. want us to do that. We're repeating ourselves a little bit cause we're worked up emotionally. Yes. Yeah. You know, that's usually where repetition comes in is what we still have feelings, but we haven't expressed all of them yet. Uh, I will say that <laughs> these, uh, these podcasts, they create the reason why they are anti-police is cause it's trendy, but also because TV shows, true crime podcasts themselves, they create this unrealistic expectation that something needs to get solved and it should happen in 60 minutes minus commercials or it should be solved eventually. Unfortunately, we live in an open-ended world where not every question has an answer, not every mystery has a solution. And when that happens, when you have a case that's not solved, it's not because of incompetence or indifference or because the police are a problem. Sometimes cases are beyond solution. This isn't Mm -hmm. a TV show being written by a writer. This is an open-ended universe of infinite chance being filled up with people who have, uh, you know, free will and uh, physics and destiny and all this and shit's going to happen and not everything can be solved. So if that works out that way where someone can't be found, uh, maybe do your due diligence on what it means to be a police officer and start looking for someone rather than just saying, uh, you know, someone ought to be told their job is to protect and serve and we're the taxpayers, damn it. Uh, Why don't you go ahead and put on a uniform since you know how to do it and uh, you can go out there and protect all those people that obviously need you so badly. (coughs) Are we yes. Done? And I, I would just like we're done blowing up that I would, podcast. <laughs> I would like to say two things before we close out. Um, the first thing is, is that I know we've mentioned it many times, but I want to clarify that we the purpose of us talking about this was not to make Brandon out to be some idiot that deserved to go missing and die. I mean, no. we can it's safe to assume he's dead. We're, we didn't make this to point out um everything wrong that his parents did or what they could have done different. Um, it, every situation, you don't know how you're going to react in a situation like this. We don't know every single detail because we weren't there for the conversations. Um, we're just 
speculating and adding our own, contributing to our own opinions to this the same way that these other podcasts do. And the perspective of law enforcement is lost in true crime a lot. And I, that is why we're so passionate. We're not trying to victim blame, um, as people like to say, but it is important to be completely educated on all sides. And we, as first responders, are very sensitive and understanding to the victim side or the family side because we deal with it all the time. That's and very little, um, we work, yes, we, work we want to do that. So when you denigrate yes. law enforcement, when you say we sh- that we're shitty, that we're not doing our job, we don't have a sense of urgency, we're not protecting and serving, what are you doing for the future victims out there by tearing down police departments, by making people not want to be in this job? Bad stuff is Mm -hmm. going to continue to happen in the human race. And our entire culture is all about removing good police officers from being in that position. So the next time uh, Brandon Swanson happens, maybe there's not as many good police officers as there was in 2008. I would argue that we're already there. But you know what? Yes. Uh, Don't assume that we're not doing our job because maybe we are and you don't know what our job is. And our job is not easily understood by by the public. And I would bet you that if you called me up and told me what you do for a living, I might not understand it either. The difference is, is that what I do for a living and what Kendra did for a living has very high stakes. And that's why we're subject to this kind of criticism. When you make a mistake at work, there's not going to be a podcast about it. There's not going to be someone who has no idea what it's like to work at your agency or your job saying how you did it wrong. And it's completely unfair for someone who's never been in law enforcement as a dispatcher, as a firefighter, police officer, someone that just makes these cutesy little wise-ass podcasts to say that they didn't do their job when, frankly, you don't know what you're talking about. You're not educated by A&E. You're not educated by this podcast, most likely. And you're not educated by your own. And it shows. And we want to, like I do anyway, I want everybody to be aware of both sides. So hopefully if you're listening to this um, mystery podcast that we haven't named Please do not take a personal offense. I'm sure you're very lovely ladies, but maybe just um, humble yourself a little bit. Stop thinking that you own the true crime genre just because you have a large following. And um, maybe reach out to one of us and get an actual perspective on what goes into these types of investigations. And it might help you from being so angry at for no reason. Um, The second thing I wanted to say real quick, speaking of being accurate and informing, Last podcast, when we talked about the McCamey Manor, I mentioned uh, an employee, um, an ex-employee by the name of Ryan Lawrence, and I said that he was a convicted felon for some sort of battery against law enforcement. I was, um, I'm wrong on that. Somebody that knows him personally reached out to me and said um, he's not a convicted felon, and I would just like to correct myself on that because the last thing I want to do <laughs> is put that on someone who is not a convicted felon. Yep. We, it was someone, it was another employee that I got confused with. So I just want to put that out there. Yep, we, Brian Lawrence is not a convicted felon. I was wrong. We officially <laughs> apologize. That was wrong. Uh, we'd like to see uh, some other podcasts in the true crime genre uh, saying when they're wrong. I will say when I'm wrong here uh, every time because my following, uh, it doesn't matter. Uh, what matters is that I'm out there saying things that are true uh, because mm-hmm. uh, I, I can be wrong. I can, I can handle that, whatever. The truth matters. Yes, it does. And so does Brandon. So hopefully, uh, hope against hope, he turns up and then he's okay. And there's an, there's an answer to this quandary because that's what we all want. Uh, we just need to stop pointing mm-hmm. the finger at each other uh, for when uh, he doesn't doesn't come home. Um, yes. Failure to Stop is a full family of podcasts. If you like other things besides true crime, on Wednesday we got news for you with Dead Leg Media and Eric Tanzi. 
On Thursday night, I uh, co-host the Com Center, which is a show much like this one where you get mad at people who don't understand how Nine One Dispatch works. <laughs> kind of crossed over a little bit this week. Uh, we'll be uh, hopefully doing a game show if everything comes together by Thursday. On Friday's the big show. They're going to have Tom Rizzo, I believe is his name. And if I get his name wrong, then I'll apologize next week. He's going to come on and talk on the show. That's going to be exciting. <laughs> on Sunday, if you like uh, paranormal shit, if you like conspiracies and covers up, cover-ups, check out Night Shift TSI. That's with Eric Tanzian, conservative Anthony Ramondi. And then on Mondays, Uncuffed, uh, where you can get uh, society and police news from two former comedians, Eric Tanzian and Jada Raul White. Uh, support us, support them. We're all part of a network. We're all big, one happy family of cousins. Uh, we appreciate you tuning in live to the YouTube. Thanks for subscribing uh, on uh, Patreon or Spotify or iTunes, however else you're finding us. Thanks for supporting the podcast. Uh, we will catch you back here next week for another True Crime Tuesday. So until then, stay safe. And whatever you do, don't get yourself calm centered. I mean, true crime. Don't get yourself true crimed. Don't go into a stranger's house when you're trick-or-treating. Always good advice. Uh, <laughs> we'll catch you next week, everybody. Bye. Guns up. Giddy up. Good night, America.